Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Tenzin Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. How are you today, my friend? <laughs> I am your Sherpa. Yes, you are. What a, what a great character. Yeah. How are you today? Yes. I'm good, dude. Everything's good. Yeah. I was just... um, I'm just going to go right into it. I was really excited. This is, a, this is a one-off for us. Maybe the first time. I have a culinary tip for you, Kyle. Oh. And not typical of our opening conversations, but... I have a little cooking tip that I've been very proud of. And a little earlier while I was working the day job, I'm like, what am I going to talk about on the show tonight with Kyle? And then I went down for lunch and I said, you know what? I got to talk about this thing that I discovered, a a kitchen discovery. I think it's, I'm going to be honest with you. I think it's Martha Stewart worthy, this this kitchen tip. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people could probably use this because it's not advanced at all. So here's the thing. Now, Kyle, I'm not even sure about your egg eating habits are you an egg a hard-boiled egg guy at all i like them i I rarely make them but i like eggs in all forms me too i feel the same way yeah a little scrambled sunny side up over medium i'll go with the poached oh yeah poached egg is great yeah and i would say a fried egg has a place as well fried egg delicious now hard-boiled i i could speak to what you're saying though hard-boiled egg is almost people don't think of it it's kind of unrecognized you don't really ever order them in restaurants, for instance, right. where you go out yeah. for a diner for breakfast. Like, You're never thinking hard-boiled egg. It's in that one salad. What's that? Hard, uh, oh, Cobb the salad. Cobb salad. Right. That's that's the, the only thing salad. I think about when I in the restaurant. That was the only reason I would see that. I would and who about. do you think of when you think of Cobb salad, by the way? One I person comes to mind. Really? I, I'm not going to say the same person because I, I think of Seinfeld when I think of Cobb salad. Oh, you think? Oh, that's, a good, <laughs> that's actually a good one. That's yeah. actually a good thing. I always thing think with, of dad because yeah. that, oh, that's what he always gets. Sure. Right? Cobb salad and coffee combination. Disgusting. It's ridiculous. And then Absolutely he'll take, and then he'll, if we're at the diner, he'll also, if I'm just done with my cheeseburger, he'll just take that too. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I didn't even have dad in the crosshairs. I don't even know where he came from, but that's, I know that you, is typical the, of knockback. By the way, just a, a side yeah. sidebar, Ali messaged us because she was listening to the last episode we did where we were, or a few episodes ago, we were talking about how during our childhood bedrooms one. When, we, when she had said we were making fun of her because when dad built an entirely new house, he still didn't give her her own bedroom. And she said that she had never thought about it. I mean, that's How some programming, that dude. That's some programming nurture shit that like mom and dad just never made it 
an option. Something and is going never on thought there. about. It. I can't. That's fucking crazy. She was the victim of that situation. Her and Dana were the victim of that. They're the one who had to share a bedroom. They came from sharing a bedroom, went to the new house, shared a bedroom. Allie never asked. Maybe, never dawned on her. Maybe a little. Maybe a little bit of a ditzy thing. I like, don't know. Uh, she when we finally get the girls, Allie and yeah. Dana, in yeah, this we'll case, Allie on the show. Dana's the holdout. I mean, Dana's the Allie's ready to go. I, I just want to make sure we do them together. We could, we could, we could do an episode with Allie one and, and Dana the other, or we can. But I feel like it would be better if we did them all. Oh, I'd love to as, for all four of us. Right. That dynamic. And I said I want to do something about the seventies. I want to do something about the eighties, and I want to do something about the nineties. And how I like, love that. Idea. That's my vision for it. I love breaking episodes. it down by decade like that. It's the perfect model for us. And Dana is. I think, I often think Dana is the funniest of the four of us. So just having her on the show and the dynamic between the four of us, I think would be very special. Look forward to that. I think, the, yeah, I, I, I we'll make it happen. My my vision is for us to do it, like just go to a, a recording studio in Richmond, just rent a place, right? Have That's what I'll do. I mean, it's, it's just the easiest amazing. way to do it. It'll be like $1,000 or whatever. idea, right. Worth and you it. just have people like work the boards and record it and we'll just do it that way. And that way we like we're positive that it's, you know, like the tragic lost dad episode, which was my the only episode of Knockback we've lost, which was my fault. I can't believe it. We that actually technically have it, but it's all being picked up off of the wrong microphone. So it's like <laughs> you're like eavesdropping on the conversation as it were. That was a shame. That was a shame. Yeah. But this one would be even better and worth its weight in gold. And then who knows? We could even have a whole thing. We could have the whole family, all six of us in the room. Yeah. Sure. Spin I mean, that will just turn into the, the therapy session we all have needed for the last. Absolutely. Oh my God, I can't even imagine. Who doesn't want to add actually... the glass to the wall for that? I know the si- the six of us all with microphones would not. I don't know where that would go. That would be interesting. But nonetheless, um, yeah, that was. I, I thought that was funny with the, with Allie. That, that that's such so a funny. That's a fun. L- listen, let but me anyway, get back we interrupted. To my cooking I, thing. Yeah, I'm sorry. I totally interrupted you. No, so that's, that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Let's that, get back that, to that the was a fun. Yeah. That was a fun sidetrack. Yeah. Sorry, but. Yeah, to keep it to keep it relatively concise. So I have this. I I'm eating more hard boiled eggs, trying to eat more lunch, like trying to have three square meals instead of just like doing what you do, waiting till later on, and trying to have a little bit more habit forming things going on with meals in the day. Also, just to take a break from the computer. That's you know, hence the walks that I've been talking about. Yeah, also, good. With the eating. Good. So with lunch, I feel like I'm trying to figure it out. Like, oh, maybe tuna fish. That's kind of a blast from the past or hard-boiled eggs, right? That's where hard-boiled eggs comes in. So, but I feel like with hard-boiled eggs, I enjoy them. It's nice for that to be back on the docket. But the thing with hard-boiled eggs is they're a pain in the ass to peel. And I yes. never quite figured this out, Kyle. Now, it always reminds this is a, a weird parallel, but follow me. I always think of it almost like bowling, for me at least. Go bowling, right? You have a great day of bowling, great afternoon. You think you figured it out. I know how to stand, block my body. I know just how to release the ball. Maybe I bowl 180, 190, which is good Great for reference. Me. Yeah. feel great. Mm-hmm. Go. I, I figured it out. You feel like you had an epiphany. I figured out bowling. I finally figured it out. Next time you go bowling, 15 gutter balls, you bowl a 56, your five-year-old knee beat you by 10 points, right? You didn't figure it out. I feel like hardball eggs, same exact thing. It's like, I figured sure. it out this time. Here's the method, everybody. You ready for this? And I didn't, I, I'd be so disappointed if somebody figured this out first, but let's be honest. Somebody figured this out, but just give it to me. Potentially thousands of years ago. So, <laughs> so now, listen, this is what you do. You got your hard-boiled egg. Let it cool in the cold water. Let it cool off a little bit. Take the paper towel, 
hard surface, let's say your counter surface, take the egg and now you got to channel the soft hands. Soft hands is important. You don't want to be too, you don't want to be a bull in the china shop, right? Think of like a, a soft, um, soft hands, say like a shortstop in baseball. What right. They always say, right? Hockey um, as well. Yeah. Hockey, same thing, right? Receive the puck with soft hands. Yeah. Soft hands. So gentle touch, firm, but not too, not too hard. Crack the egg and sort of roll it under your palm on the counter. Get those cracks throughout. Also, crack the top and the bottom. Just get it cracked, okay? Bowl of water. Could be the same bowl of water that you were cooling those eggs in. Put the now cracked egg, hopefully with that rolling motion, separates the, the skin from the egg itself, from the membrane, right? Put that in the water and then sort of take the egg on either side, you know, long ways, and sort of scrunch it up so the water gets under that shell, you understand? Now it's submerged in the water. Mm-hmm. Now when you take it out, you have that water in between the shell and the outer edible part of the egg. It just peels like like butter, my friend. And it works that's, every that's time. Beautiful. I finally figured out a foolproof, consistent method for peeling eggs. And I feel like Martha Stewart probably discovered this 40 years ago. But for me... I never do that. And I feel like it's a Martha Stewart worthy thing because it's, you know, it's not like, um, I don't know, making a roast duck or so, duck l'orange or something that people can't relate to. It's something that we could all, we all do in the kitchen. Hard boiled eggs, the easiest thing to make. Right. So I wanted to share that. I was very excited about it that I finally found a method 48 years in. Well, you know, however long I've been making hard boiled eggs. You've so, been making them since you were a, a youth. A youth. A youth. So that's what I. That's what I was. That's good. That's about. that's because that is annoying. I totally agree. Oh. And the rare time, maybe like once a year, not even. I'll make like hard boiled eggs. I'll just be like really in the mood. You know, I'll make egg salad. Is typically like how it begins. Egg like, I want great. egg salad because I fucking love egg salad. Oh my god, it's just eggs, pepper, and mayonnaise. I mean, I can even like maybe some onion or something. It's like how can you put a little hot sauce in there? Yeah, I mean, you can't Please. do that wrong. But it 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 does become frustrating, and then you buy you can buy like the pre shelled ones. Which are kind of convenient, but very expensive. Oh, I forgot about that. Like they come that in like kinda, a bag. Yeah. That kind of nullifies my my heart. But it's work a it's bit. no because it, it, not really. It's you're paying for the deshelled egg. I mean, this is the cheapest and most effective way, freshest way. Those people it. must be really good at it. The people that are sitting there deshelling the. You think it's a person? Yeah, but it must be. Yeah, no, I always assumed. I always assumed it was like some sort of violent machine that like, but somehow like didn't fuck the egg up. Like it's yeah, really rough a on machine the shell. with but, soft hands. But you can picture it kind of like, you know, an, an Oompa Loompa or something doing it. <laughs> no, What's going on with you, my friend? Do you have anything more exciting than eggs for me? No, oh, God. No, not really? at all. I, I, It's funny, man. I, I'm um, so I hooked up with this uh, this guy that does lawn. So I want to talk about my lawn for a minute. OK, I live, in a, I live in a you know small plot of land. Just got myself a nice little lawn. Sure. And I love mowing the lawn. I don't know if I've said this before. I must have talked about it on the show. I just have always loved mowing the lawn. I don't know why. I just like mowing the lawn. And it was really reinforced when I was on a professional landscaping crew at Northeastern during my college years. I was just like, this is awesome. I, I, I like doing this. Not that I wanted to do it for a living or anything, but you're outside. You're just dicking around. You're planting bulbs and mowing lawns and sweeping up and raking. Something about and, that. It's so appealing. And, it, it is. And it's, it's funny. Someone was asking me like, oh, what do you do when you do out, go outside? Like, what do you listen to or whatever? And I'm like, I don't listen to anything. I literally just don't do anything except for like do the lawn or rake the lawn or do the mulch Be or whatever. Nature. Right. 
as nature as nature driven as I, I am, I guess. But there's this guy in my neighborhood. He works at this, uh, this local mom and pop kind of lawn care, uh, outfit and his lawn looks awesome. So I finally last year, I don't want to say, I, I think Micah did it, but we called and got these people on this like regimen. They come just once a month and they do something different to your lawn. And then they just leave a little tag on your door that say that they were there. What? And so like one month will be like, they have like, you know, this is like the primer or whatever. And then it's like, this is the fertilizer and this oh, is okay. They, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Then they treat it sure. like in that little order. Nothing, sure. nothing out of the ordinary. There are a lot of companies that do this, but these guys are fucking dominant. Like this, the best, the best advertisement for this company is this dude's lawn. And so I called and lo and behold, I've gotten like four mows out of my lawn before anyone on my block has mowed their lawn. One time. Four. Four weeks. That's huge. That's tremendous. And it's just, it's, it's, I like my neighbors, but I'm embarrassing them. You know, like it's like I'm putting, I'm putting them all to shame. Now, that's the, I will say, I've said before, I live, I live on clay. It sucks. You live on clay too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so the genius builders here did a nice job with, you know, COVID times. They built all of our houses and stuff, but they didn't do a great job with the landscaping. They dug, you'll see when you're here, I've pulled mine along, pulled mine out, but they just, we have like this culvert kind of dipping through, but that splits up the properties. Yeah. And then it's lined by like pine trees that they planted, but they're all just dead because they just planted them in the clay and then they've slowly <laughs> just taken them and removed them. And they just put the sod like on top of the clay. Right. So I had my shit just like dug up and like started again with this company that I love, Smart. local company, it's an amazing company. They put down, you know, their one inch of this and they, they, all this. And they started fresh. And then they're like, and they're like, and I went to them I'm like, so who, who you guys take care of this? Or whatever? And they're like, no, you need to talk to this guy. And it was that guy in the neighborhood. And it's, it's crazy, man. I have like three or four trash bags worth of clippings to just in my trash can every week. Wow. And everyone else's shit is just not even growing. Like, I'm like, shit. I don't know what the hell this guy's doing, but it's. And so it's got me loving, loving being outside mowing the lawn more than ever. And I kind of got like a little low key competition going on with a few other guys. No, they don't know. No, but I, but there's like, well, there's they, may. Like two, they may, they may, but they there's may. like a couple of guys that I know, like I see that I'm like, you care, right? Like, cause there's a lot of people that don't care for sure. Or they have like someone else do it. And I'm like, I know you care. I know you care. I care. This guy cares and so on and so forth. You kind of keep an eye on those guys. You know, root them on too. When I see them and I'm walking the dogs, I'm like, yeah, lawn's looking great. Oh, you I push each other. Oh, but, yeah, man. But I feel like I'm coming up. And it's and I, so I like do my little patterns. I do a hatch pattern where I mow one way and then I mow the other way and it makes you like a nice little. Up. Now, you, you know, I, I you do enjoy the, it that your grass right. is growing four times faster than some of your other neighbors. Yeah, it's like the, it's a reason for me to be I think it's hot right now. It's like 83 degrees right yeah, now. Yeah, it's hot there today, right? Most but uh, but yeah, it's a reason for me to be out there and I've been enjoying that. And it's just been funny. And I've just been joking about it. I'd be like, I'm just embarrassing everyone. Look at my fucking lawn. It's just it, it can't be stopped. I have. I have this regimen of I got this new sprinkler system that's like f controlled on my phone and it oh that's huge the sprinkler dude it's so cool huge. it's so cool man I I I the builders use this like analog thing that's probably was probably cool in like the nineties or something or in the early two thousands I didn't even think that there would be an app for this and then when I hired this other landscaping company this just amazing landscaping company they're called Hudgens by the way you guys should if you're ever in Central Virginia they're dope. Mm. great company great company I feel like they might be beyond just like a local thing that name but maybe that's something else i don't, I don't yeah know i don't sure. know i don't know but they're they're really great here and like the guys i've dealt with and they're like oh you can actually get this like new system in an app 
And it's amazing. I, I know it's like, I'm sure people have been using it for years, but it's so funny. It's like you set up the times and the zones and stuff, and then it like tracks the weather and like makes adjustments. And it says like, it's too hot today. We're going to run you for another 10 minutes or it's raining tomorrow. It doesn't need to run at all. And so That's on and so huge. forth. Pretty cool. So we're, I we, love have, that. we have it down to a science down here because I have I have the tap feed water, you know, the drip feed water sure, in the backyard. Sure. I got the got a lot of things going on right now. The yards, it's coming together. I admire you, my friend. You know, what's Thank so you. funny. I love seeing you kind of entrenched in this whole suburban thing. Um, it doesn't surprise me. But if I think back to even conversations with you, eh, I don't know, five years ago, it was like, yeah, I'm fixing to go to Brooklyn. Yeah. Stuff like that, right? Yeah, and then definitely. to see you like in this in suburbia in Richmond, suburban Richmond, it's very in a pretty relatively rural place, not even like suburbia, super built up suburbia, relatively rural. It's it's uh it it tickles it tickles me. Yeah, it's fun. I like it. I enjoy it. I intentionally moved to a neighborhood I probably could have I definitely could have afforded more land and lived more secluded or whatever, but I wanted to I know how I am and so I need to be in a place where I see other people and like there's some sort of interaction. Otherwise, I think I'll just get lonely and detached from reality. So I'm, I, it's a nice place to live in. Yeah, I think I never imagined because I was in California for so long. I was like, I can't afford a reasonable house in San Francisco or in L.A. I guess I could have, but I would have been house poor and or living in a place I didn't really want to live in. And when I finally wrapped my mind around, like, why don't you just buy a house which you can fit your San Francisco and L.A. apartment in each three times over? And which costs half the amount that your rent costs. It literally at some point, like it's impossible to justify. It was like, I got to get out of here. I just, you know, I got to like go buy a house. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I don't know why so I didn't do smart. this 15 years ago. But so smart, dude. I'm very proud. I'm proud of you. I was listening Thank to you. this just as a little aside. I was listening to this real estate agent being interviewed on NPR. I don't know what show it was last night. And she was saying like, if it's getting to the point where she feels so bad for people, because they'll come to her like, look, I can afford $1.8 million. This is in San Francisco. I can afford one, about $1.8. My only real thing is, you know, my, my thing that I can't bend on is that I need two bedrooms on the same floor. This is almost $2 million. And that's their, that's their barometer. Like, that's, the, that's all yeah, they're looking for. And it's she's crazy. like, I can't do it. Dude, San Francisco is out of control just because I don't, I don't think people people say it, but I don't think they conceptualize why it is this way. It's because and we saw I saw it there over and over again as companies went public. When Facebook went public, for instance, a thousand millionaires were made in San Francisco right that day. Now, imagine you have millions of dollars in your pocket. Right. And you just go and you're like, I'll just pay for this house in cash. Now, there's there's that there's that happened now thousands of times over and over and over and over and over and over so again. I mean, many times. I knew so many people that got outbid just being like, I'll pay for cash at 1.8 million, wow. 2.5 million, 3.8 million, whatever it was. It's like, yeah, I'll just pay for it in cash. Somebody wants it. You're fucked. And somebody right. and it's like, and, it. and, and, and by the way, it's not a bad investment. I mean, in my opinion, to say like, no. you have, if you have the liquid assets and you're like, I'm just going to buy this piece of land in a city that is seven miles by seven miles. Is that how big that, it that is? is? Okay. Yeah. And that's it. Very tiny place. Yeah. I'm going to buy this little square of it for and I'll buy the house on top of it for $2 million and I'll own this little piece of land of one of the most expensive cities in the world. I don't think that's a bad investment. That's that's what is so shitty about it is like it's not like you're owning anyone. It's like those guys not only got the house in cash, but they're like, yeah, all right. Now, now my house is worth twice as much as it was when I paid for it. Well, in that's cash. the thing. You know, that's the like, whole thing. It's, there's, it's, a, it's an investment no matter how you look. She was saying it's right. getting so bad now because the interest rates are starting to go up. So people are scrambling. Right. So it's as right. insane as it's ever been. She called it surreal estate, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah, like, that's how great. Has nobody That'd be a great that podcast name. Yet? That'd be a great podcast name, surreal estate. So far, yeah, perfect, right? 
Yeah. And Sam, look, San Francisco's not the only one. New York's. No. New York was bad. Boston is notoriously very expensive. Boston's apparently gotten very bad. Boston was somewhat affordable when I lived there. You know, it, it's gotten pretty, is that pretty bad. I, that I, I can't believe I lived there for, when I was 22 in an apartment with yeah. a couple people. You know, yeah. it's like I, I don't Boston, I, as I understand now, is just crazy. I think um, it's like the San Francisco of the East Coast for yeah. sure. You yeah, know? a lot of big companies there. So but uh, yeah, the interest rates are going up. They're going to go up quicker. They need to go up because inflation is so bad. So yeah, know, strap exactly. in. That's the remedy, but, right? Yes. Unfortunately, the remedy is really a recession, unfortunately, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah, Let's keep it upbeat for now. Yeah, we'll see. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. All right, Dake. Let's right. get into the topic at hand. And thank you all for your kind words out there, by the way. I know you guys, a lot of you say you enjoy these uh, these little talks. Some say it's the best part of the show. That's sad. <laughs> Should we just do all that right. for two hours? I know. Jesus Christ. That would be a lot easier than the 17 pages of notes I was taking with Uncharted 2. But that is the topic today. Uncharted 2, Among Thieves, the smash hit 2009 PlayStation game that I remember very well. It came out the day before my birthday that year. And uh, Oh, wow. That's right. October, right? Yeah, October 13. We had it oh, earlier. October. I was right. I wrote the strategy guide for it at IGN. I, now, oh, this shit. game, I wasn't writing reviews. Like, I wasn't an editor yet, like I would of IGN PlayStation. This was when I was still on writing strategy guides, but I was on Podcast Beyond at this time. So it's an interesting sort of mixture of that. But what's interesting about this game to me, and I don't know if a lot of other PlayStation fans know this intrinsically or feel it. This game may be the most important game that's ever been released on PlayStation. And it's a massive hit. Some people consider this one of the great games of all time. A lot of people consider this the great, the greatest Uncharted game. You don't have the full breadth of, to make that determination yet. No, I personally yet. think the third one's better. And we'll get there eventually. They're both great. They're both amazing games. But Uncharted 2 came out around the time that PlayStation 3 Slim came out. And this is important because PlayStation 3 Slim was the representation of the massive price cut from PlayStation 3, which began at $600 and $500 and then $400. And then finally, this model, people will remember, we leaked it at IGN. This this model had actually leaked out of like factories, like just walked off the floor. They were like in, they were literally just loose in oh, Malaysian fucking markets and shit like that. And, it was, and everyone was like, what is this random... And and it was it was crazy. People can go and read about it. Holy shit! And it ended up being people were like buying them loose with like a dual shot, a loose dual shot controller and shit. And everyone's like, "What the fuck is this?" PS three and it just uncharted when uncharted two came out. It was the time I think PlayStation put its flag in the ground and says like we make better games than our competitor. And I say competitor in, in terms of Microsoft because I think that even at this time Nintendo was playing a different game. I think 
now Nintendo's definitely playing a different game. There's some crossover with Zelda and all of this, but when you look at games like Kirby and you look at Mario and you look at Animal Crossing, and that that's just like its own thing. Sony and Microsoft really were competing hard at this time, and Xbox 360 was beating the shit out of PlayStation 3. And Uncharted 2 was a, the first game that I think demanded a lot of people's attention. Now, there were really great games before that. I would say Resistance Fall of Man was one of those games. Heavenly Sword was one of those games. I know a lot of people really liked Folklore. Of course, you have the original Uncharted game. You have uh, others as well. So, and, and of course, there were a lot of dud second-party games like Layer and all this shit that people hated too. But amongst these games where just a, a little big planet was in there, there okay. were a few games that were starting to attract attention. Resistance 2. Then you finally get to Uncharted 2. And I feel like this game just blew the world apart. And I think really saved the PlayStation brand. I don't know that it's too dramatic to say that. Sure. That it's it's at the time, at the place, the new console, the new slim console, the new price, this game from this bubbling party. And we'll talk about Naughty Dog. Naughty Dog wasn't looked at the way it's looked at now. This was a game that people were like, holy shit, I had no idea you guys could do this. I mean, Uncharted 1 was, of course, great, but this these guys were still well-known for Jack and Daxter and Crash Bandicoot. No one really looked at them like this. So there's a lot riding on this game. And that's why I think it's so interesting to talk about. And it was voted on by our audience on Knockback. You guys vote each and every month over there by supporting us. And you guys wanted us to do Uncharted 2. So we'll do it. And I'm curious, Dave, what, what did you think of the game? I mean, we have lots to say, but what's, what are your top top line thoughts, your elevator thoughts? So glad you guys chose this game. I mean, wow. And I like I like that little tidbit about Naughty Dog 2 with Drake's Fortune with Uncharted 1. Yeah, it was a great game, but was that an anomaly? Did you guys get lucky? This is almost like proof positive. Like, okay, you guys have something here. And, you know, I, I said this with the first Uncharted, Kyle, and I'll say it with the second one. I'll echo the same sentiment. Fun. In all caps. I just had such an amazing time. I found myself literally smiling from ear to ear while playing this game. Just so enjoyable. Such a treat just a joyful experience and i really loved my time with it i really lament one of those great one of those games we play for the podcast but maybe even more so than almost any other this time where it was like i'm so sorry to see this come to an end it was so much fun and i love the first game as an introduction to uncharted you know to the, into the world an intro to the characters the way things are going to work but the atmosphere all that kind of thing but I love this game as an extension of the first, as a continuation, a proper sequel, a little bigger, more thrills, a proper blockbuster, just took Uncharted 1 and pushed out the boundaries and just made it bigger, made everything on a larger scale, more set piece moments, more action, just felt like playing a Michael Bay movie in all the best ways, though. I, I mean that in all the best ways, you know, sort of Indiana Jones meets Die Hard. I thought that minutes in. I was like, wow, this took everything in the game and just just made the scope even larger. Maybe one of the best sequels I've ever played if you're just looking at one and two. Now, again, I have to remind you guys, I haven't played Beyond 2 yet, and I can't wait. But yeah, just in looking at the first two games in a franchise, man, they did such an amazing job. And I, I just can't wait to crack this conversation. There's so much, so much to say here. And may I say at the beginning too, and I almost feel bad for saying this because I love Naughty Dog and I love the characters in the game. They do a good job with the story. The voice acting is amazing. Preposterously good, actually. But I don't remember ever playing a game 
where I actually gave less shits about the story. I just could not wait <laughs> to keep playing. Interesting. That was the whole thing for me. It was like, yeah, the story's great, the character's great, ND is awesome. I love him. He's he's endear he's endearing, totally lovable. And everybody does a great job. There's so much pot every this game is just gushing with positivity, right? But I just never remember playing a game where I'm just like, whatever, just let me at it. I just want to be immersed in this world. I don't care what's going on with the heavy and the betrayals and the double crossing and triple crossing and who's working for who and old allies, you know, stabbing each other in the back and all the amazing. But yeah, it was a singular experience for me in that I just wanted to have fun with it. And I feel like that is the tone of the game. It's just like a popcorn movie in game form. Totally. Amy Hennig's a master. Also, shout out to Bruce Straley, who directed the game. And he, of course, would go on to co-direct The Last of Us. And, of course, is one of the people that saved Uncharted 4 when Amy Hennig left. So he doesn't get a lot of credit for this. But Amy Hennig's writing, pacing, of course, Neil Druckmann working on this as a designer. That there's a lot of mm. there's a lot of love here. And what's amazing about Uncharted 2, and this is the craziest part, they made it in two years that's insane two years i mean that's i don't even know how that's possible I, I don't think you can make a game like this today in fewer than four years and i think that that's even pushing it the fact that they made they started uncharted one project big in 2005 and they released uncharted 3 in 2011 i mean that's in late 2011 that's an incredible feat and of course uncharted 4 was tortured but that was because of a lot of drama behind the scenes that was the fact that naughty dog saved that and that it's widely considered wonderful is another sign that the studio is great, but we're not there yet um, in our tale with Uncharted. So I wanted to start, and I, you're right, by the way, popcorn flick through and through, interesting storytelling devices as far as splitting the narrative up and then meeting it back together, and we'll talk about that. Oh, yeah. We have to talk about the opening, which is, uh, some people argue, maybe the most iconic opening in video game history. Stu Dog wrote in and said, Howdy, bros. My question is mostly for Dagan. The opening is seen in Uncharted 2 is iconic, not only for PlayStation, but for the industry as a whole. Uncharted 2 changed the standards that cinematic video games still follow to this day. My question for you is, what other iconic video game opening sequences stand out to you as someone who hasn't dabbled as much in modern games? Mm. Any other games that instantly draw you in Naughty Dog, uh, in like Naughty Dog does so well? The reason I wanted to pitch this is because in my mind, there is really no game that, int that starts like this. And I'm curious what you think about that train sequence when you're hanging off the train and have no real knowledge of what's going on. Gets you involved right away. And I know I've said it. I mean, we're repeating it over and over again, but it, it really is like the, one of the most memorable very up there with Bioshock with its intro when you're going down to, to the city and and others where it's like this. I, I couldn't wait. I, I didn't play through it. And I'll talk about that in a minute. I actually watched a playthrough of it. I guess I'll just kind of put an asterisk right now. I've beaten this game no fewer than 10 times. I've platinum wow. the game on Holy PlayStation shit. 3 and PlayStation 4. So I beat it on normal hard and crushing on both the PS3 and the PS4. I wrote the entire strategy guide for it. I know this game frontwards and backwards. There was no reason for me to play it again. And in fact, watching the playthrough of it, I would skip through a lot of the gameplay. And I was like, man, I remember this like it was yesterday because I just played it so much because I I was playing it blind. I had to find all the treasures and everything. So I was just playing stages over and over and over and over again, trying to find these things. So I wanted to throw that out there. I have my bonafides with, with Uncharted 2, I think are pretty well established. But I think so. But uh, what did you think about this sequence? Did you know that the game started out like this? Because it's no. so well known. And um, yeah, t tell me about your, your start with it. 
Yes, yeah, spo- totally spoiler-free, jumping in, what a treat. I mean, jumping, it's almost like a, a great movie or a director whose hallmark is to jump right into the action. I always love that. I always kind of like just jumping right in. I love the formula of that. So jumping right into the, the action, almost like the ending of Michael Caine's Italian job. You know, the vehicle's hanging off the cliff. Your protagonist is seemingly seriously injured. And already the wheels are turning, like what is happening and having to play that and then finding out pretty quickly that you're going to have to work back up to that point. But it's showing you a half halfway, a third of the way through, whatever it is, two thirds of the way through, whatever that was. And I love that. I love starting the formula like that. And I love that a video game is saying it's so funny that 2009 feels like so long ago. It's really not, but it just feels like ages ago. But I love the, these video game creators saying like we could just do everything a movie does like the great ones like Druckmann like Kojima you know it's saying okay let's start it out it's what's what could be more compelling than just jumping right into the action and then I loved when you when you kind of realize that you're working your way back up to that point in real time in the game what a great formula for storytelling it's and awesome I, because you're on you're on the train and we'll talk about the train when you're actually on it later in the game. You're on it for so long and you know that what's going to happen is that the train is going to crash and you're just waiting for it. And what's so funny is that the, it just never happens. Like it just continues on and on and on and on. And it's, it's absolutely waiting for that shoe to drop. Right. Great point. It's, it's pretty cool. I love that intro, too. I, I watched it a couple of times over because I was like, man, this is I remember this so well. The train hanging, hanging off the cliff, clambering up the first treasure you see in the corner, kind of the glimmer of it. And I love that they bounce back and forth between immediately. They start flashing back specifically to this beach bar and they introduce two characters that we don't know yet. Harry Flynn and Chloe Frazier. Chloe ends up being a very important part of Uncharted moving forward. Oh, um, that's good to know. Yeah. And sorry, if that's a spoiler. Fun, she, well, she's, fun character. Yeah. She, she like Sullivan sticks around. She's kind of like the character you pick up in Uncharted too. And there are more later. And Harry, of course, we find, you know, we know Harry meets his demise at the end of the game, but of course, is an interesting character, too. But we find Drake for the very first time in the real world. And I love this. And Dylan Tucker actually wrote in and kind of touches on this. I wanted to give him a shout out here. He says, hey, boys, one of my favorite things about Uncharted is the feeling that the characters have real history and we don't know all of it. It makes the world feel so much more real. Clearly, Eddie Raja and Nate had history in the first game. Flynn and Chloe are the same. Just want to appreciate how perfect the writing is that you feel history between all the characters and you know exactly how they're feeling in only a few sentences. Nothing is better than Elena, who we'll get to later, being deeply offended that Chloe dismissed her. Did this stand out to you and does it increase the storytelling for you as much as it does for me? It certainly does and it becomes immediately clear. Spreading the map out on the table, drinking the beers on the beach, a lot of casual stuff. I love Chloe being introduced as a driver. I think we've talked about that on past shows, how I love this idea of criminal enterprises having specialties it's very gi joe like it's like she's the driver he's the the, best the tech guy you know like mainframe and this is the you know very very almost like mission impossible as well and i i really dig that they introduce her and harry's kind of like the connection to this this mysterious benefactor what did you think about kind of the sudden introduction of these two characters in fact we don't see much of sully in this game at all and um which is i know one of the things that people complained a lot about and it was it was a bummer and we don't see Elena till later. And I love the way they wrote her in because it's brilliant. But what did you think about the introduction of these characters and kind of getting to know Drake outside of his relationship with Sully, outside of that island and that first game? This is the first time we're really seeing him outside of any of that. We, we, we last left him on the dock, 
right? Like, right. You know, so what do you think? Super fun. I love, yeah, Sully sort of bookends the the game. We don't see, we don't see a lot of him, and I, I love the relationship between Sully and and uh, Nate. You know that sort of mentor protege thing, but the protege is sort of becoming the master himself. I love that whole dynamic. And every character, it's true what Dylan said. They do a lot with a little, just in terms of exposition through dialogue. And you had mentioned the the awesome dialogue writing in this and the awesome characterization. You get so much. Just from brief exchanges of the characters interacting, you see how the personalities work together and you see, you know, they'll bring up bits of their histories and their origins. And it does, it feels very grounded. You feel like these characters have known each other for a long time. So that history just makes it even more fun and more compelling because you're wondering what they're going to get up to next. Also, when you're introduced to these characters in the beginning, and thank you for quantifying the fact that they introduced Chloe as a driver because... I thought I was going crazy at a certain point because I had remembered that tidbit. Like you, I kind of speak to that specialty thing. Who's the driver? Who's good at forging documents? Who's good at making bombs? Like, I love that whole thing. Yeah, it's good. It's awesome. So very cool. Kojima also. It is very. Yeah, it is very Kojima. And I think because we grew up loving that same stuff that that fuels the content. Right. But you never see, you de- never do see her drive. So it's nice to know that maybe. Well, it's nice to know we'll see her again in future future iterations. But I love that. I love just the kind of brief exchanges that the characters have and so how much you could do through just creating dialogue and seeing these characters interact. It's a lot of fun. That's why I feel, I feel bad almost because, again, like you said, Colin, it, there is a lot of TLC there. There's a lot of loving craft to really making these characters believable and making them fun and making them appealing, I think. So I always feel bad for saying, like, just let me get into the action. But you probably wouldn't, in all fairness, want to jump in and really entrench yourself in the game if you didn't like these characters. I'll and, also say, you know, that, it's so fun. Well, I was—I'm sorry to interrupt. I was going to say yeah. that it, it's very reminiscent of indie, in my opinion. Very just much in that so. Indiana Jones. I mean, I could tell you what the three Indiana Jones. Well, I don't acknowledge the fourth one, but we, the three Indiana Jones movies. We can talk about what they're about, but it's really about moments and character and. It's it's different. I, I kind of feel like this is a playable version of that in a deeper way than the obvious Tomb Raider Uncharted kind of influence that that's here. So I don't really begrudge you that. It's much more strange that you played Bioshock without listening to any of the audio diaries. I don't know. How yeah, that, was... that was that must have been some experience. <laughs> but the first Bioshock. Yeah, I've come a long way since then, though. You have to. Yeah. You have to. No, you definitely have. You definitely have. You're doing great. So the story, as we learn through Flynn and Chloe is surrounding Marco Polo, the 11th century explorer and this Mongolian oil lamp that he apparently brings back from the Far East and they need it. Now, what I what I find so interesting about this is and they they touch on this in the first one, but they touch on it again here in, in a more in a bigger way, which I love is that Drake's really smart and I like that they play into this. He's he speaks 12th century or 11th century Latin. He can read it. And he understands inherently when he looks at the Mongolian oil lamp, he's like, this thing is worthless. Like, he just knows that it's not worth all the trouble, that there's got to be more to it. I like that they kind of play this up, the story of the 13 missing ships, ships and, the, and the lamp is the key and all of the rest. And it begins as this kind of, like you said, a heist. So we get right into the action. And, and one of the cool things about the gameplay here that shines for the first time in Uncharted is stealth. It's not really very complicated, but... The game requires you not to blow your cover, so it it has pretty good stealth mechanics. 
which is when you compare games to other games in 2009, it does it pretty well. So what did you think about this entire idea of beginning with a heist, going after this kind of mysterious, worthless oil lamp? Obviously, there's much more intrigue about what it really is. And did you have this feeling that you were going to be betrayed by Flynn or Chloe? Because at this point, you don't really know Chloe really is a friend. You don't really trust her the entire game the first time, I imagine. I don't really remember what it's like. Yeah, playing sure. It for the no, first time I think anymore. you're right. So what did you think about that whole setup with Marco Polo going to Istanbul, breaking into the museum, working with these kind of characters that there is history with? How did you find that all? Uh, I thought it was super fun. Breaking into the museum in Istanbul and, and you're sort of running afoul of the guards. And I do like the fact that they clearly ramped up the stealth. Like stealth is a little more part of the equation now than the first game. I liked introducing that because you still have the overt combat as well. So it gives you the best of both worlds. And I did see the Chloe character as a potential femme fatale in the beginning. I was like, wow, this character is definitely feels like it's kind of setting you up to believe that this character is not on the up and up. And this is possibly one to watch out for as far as betrayals and backstabbings and all that kind of stuff. And then the Flynn character, too. I didn't see that. I just saw that as a fun thing like, okay, Drake has a proxy now instead of the older Victor mentor character. It's sort of a, a colleague another you know part of uh nate's posse and not a rival not a belloc type character in this case someone that's sort of working in tandem with him and also misleading in the fact that you i didn't think flynn was going to be become one of the heavies or one of the bad guys i certainly wasn't thinking that from the beginning it was kind of cool to see nate working with his contemporaries i enjoyed it too i'm trying i was trying to when i was watching it and, and by the way we were we were just sitting on the couch watching and I was taking notes. I took copious notes, but we were getting so pulled into it. I, I was actually looking over and watching Micah just get pulled. Like we were just watching it like, like as if it was a film. It was it was that that impressive. Even just watching a, a, someone else play it. It was amazing. And also, I picked up my controller multiple times, like after a cutscene to like play, like, you know, like when a cutscene ends and you can I see the camera like zooming back in and I like would pick it up and be like, oh, yeah, I'm not. I've done that many times watching stuff on YouTube. Yeah, I could speak to that. So. I really enjoy how they bounce back and forth between because it's not they don't begin with the train sequence and then bounce you back these months and then just work your way up. You're actually bouncing back and forth a little bit, which is cool. Yeah. And eventually we find this Tibetan Furba, the knife in the snow. That's another iconic shot of Drake crawling toward towards and picking it up and finding it. It ends up being this really important key. What do you think about this? This thing seems like it's going to be a MacGuffin. I was thinking about this. I actually wrote this in my notes. It seems like it was going to be un- so unimportant, but it ends up being this really vital thing that is dragged from near the beginning of the game all the way through to the end. What did you like about having that kind of device to focus on? It seemed like it was a distraction, like it wasn't going to be important, but it ended up being vital. And and it's so funny how loose they treated it at times, especially with Schaefer later on. Yeah, you know what? That's a really good point. I don't think I thought about it like that, but now thinking about it in retrospect, it does seem a little MacGuffin-ish because it's introduced so early. It's like, how can they already have that important artifact? That can't be important. But it does become, this relic does kind of hang at the center of the story for a lot of it. And he's using it deep into the game to access the various temples and the traps and overcome the various things and solve the riddles and the problems and the, you know, all the puzzles. So that was that was a lot of fun. And I, you know, I just love the whole thing of I'm fascinated with Aztec, Mayan, whatever it is in this case, that the ancient relics, the ancient temples, the way these 
things were built, the, you know, potential booby traps. And again, that could be growing up with Indiana Jones and that sort of serial B movie formula, even cartoons and stuff that we grew up with always had it. Look at Scooby-Doo right there in some ancient tomb or something. Mm. So it's fun to see that. And also I love Kyle that early on we find out much like the first game that you sort of have these real world elements, actual people that existed, for instance, Marco Polo and sort of tying that in with, their own fictional touches to create this, you know, again, world building that is believable, but also very fun and very cartoonish and very, you know, really there's no limits to what you could do with that, which I think is, you know, at the center of that, that's just, it just makes for a good time with the characters, with the quest, with the baddies. It's nothing overtly cerebral or complex. It's just, it's just good stuff good solid stuff i think an important thing that they add to this game as well that gives it texture is this kind of idea of globe trotting and game simp wrote in and said hey dad and uncle how do you feel the setting of among these compares to drake's fortune this entry introduces the globe trotting structure of future games where drake and company hop from setting to setting in a rather sporadic fashion drake's fortune however maintains one isolating isolated setting the island that receives deeper exploration and storytelling while sure. it's no Bioshock, I think that Uncharted 1 setting feels like a character itself. I'm curious if you feel like there was something missing here or if, if you like the idea of going from place to place. We, of course, begin with the snow and we're bouncing back and forth to the beach and then we're in Istanbul and then we go to Borneo and then it's Nepal and Tibet and all this stuff. So there's a lot of globe trotting. You don't really get to see any one place too deeply until later. I think you see Nepal pretty deeply, but yeah, that's true. What did you think? Of, how did you? Think, what did you think about that kind of contrast between the first game wherein they, they removed the idea of having a character like a Resident Evil mansion or something and instead put you in these different stages? That is a really great point because when you do have one location, like Drake's Fortune, you get to really explore the atmosphere of that place. And it does take on, the, the location takes on a character because you're getting to know that place, you're getting steeped in it. And having a formula where you could go from place to place you could see that would rob you of that dynamic, but I love, again, the progression from one to two, and I gotta say, it's irresistible. That formula of being able to be whisked anywhere in the world and just kind of taking off the the boundaries and just saying, like, we're just gonna tear the ropes off. We could do anything and we could go anywhere. There's something very fun in that. And I could see a developer in sort of fleshing out a franchise wanting to do that for the next iteration, especially if they felt like artistically and technologically they were capable of doing that now. So it is a very logical progression. I think just, again, irresistible fun to be able to say, we could go anywhere and do anything and let's do that. And there's something very exciting about that rhythm and that pace and being being able to go anywhere and just being at a place long enough, then we're going to the next thing. And also that contrast. You're in the, you know, you're in the cities of Nepal. You have the urban warfare. You have the snowy cliffs. You have the beaches. You have inside the, these massive temples, sprawling temples. So you have a little bit of everything. It just works again in that. I always call it that Return of the Jedi perspective. It's like you get a little bit of Dagobah, a little bit of Endor, a little bit of outer space, a little bit of Tatooine. So it just, I love that. Yeah, I do too. It's almost inexplicable because you you wonder like how do they get here? What do they what do they do? What was their plan? But it's not really important. That would be more for like a novelization of Uncharted, which would be interesting in and of itself, of course. But 
I want to ask you about some of these characters. We had br- brought up some of them already. Adam Razik wrote in and said, Chloe is a fantastic character and a brilliant addition to the series. That's all I have to say. Cheers. What did you think of your time with Chloe Frazier? And speaking of what we were talking about earlier with these characters having a history, we learned that Nate and her dated, it seems like. It seems like Nate broke up with her at some point. By the way, we always talk about tasteful or not tasteful sex scenes. I, I do like the tasteful scene with them in the hotel where the camera just pans up to the painting. And I like the comment later where she's like, you know, the hotel, she's trying to like get them to the hotel because it's like, and he's like, now's not the time. It's it very, very funny. So very tastefully done. But what did you think about your introduction to Chloe? Good shit. It's so nice to have another memorable female character in the, in the franchise. And also I have to say, so happy that she turned out to be on the up and up because very likable. And in the beginning, you're thinking, okay, love triangle. You got Flynn, you got Nate, you got Chloe. And then later on, you're thinking love triangle with Elena, Chloe, and Nate. But it never really pans out in any in any fashion like that. Again, sort of kind of misleads you a little bit in a fun way. But I love the fact that she the character is a proper payoff. And when it, when you kind of realize that this character is a quote unquote good guy, you're definitely you know really happy to see her pop up. And I love the way she moves in and out of the story too. She's not always there because she's infiltrating. The baddies, you know, the uh, Lazarevics, I guess, you know, posse. So she's kind of like the inside man. And it's, it's again, super cool. My only regret, not being able to see her drive because she's obviously a badass driver. That's her specialty. Yeah, she, she, you see her drive like the boat and that's it. And oh, right. That's true. And then, but then that she counts. says that she's supposed to be waiting for them in the van. So that was what she was actually there for. <laughs> but we never actually see that happen. Never get to see that. It's funny because we were talking about the in the previous conversation about Drake's fortune, the parallels between the relationships between the bad guys and the good guys. And I feel like there's another kind of interesting parallel here in that Flynn is like a poor version of Drake. Like he does read some of this Latin. He does know some of the history. He is, on, you know, kind of like he is a. He's a treasure hunter, too. He's just not as talented. And I like that they kind of drew the contrast between. Chloe not having no knowing anything. In fact, she's kind of the the proxy for the character because she's always asking questions. She's like, what are you talking about? I hate when he does that. Blah, blah, blah. While Flynn is kind of like a know-it-all and is being used by Lazarevich just for his very basic, you know, knowledge of the situation that might be able to help Lazarevich get what he wants, which is this power. And it's worth noting that, of course, we learn very, through a very cool scene at the museum in Istanbul when they they break it open and they use the, the the resin for the fire and they look at the map and all you know, very uncharted Indiana Jones Tomb Raider kind of shit. Good point that. And it's good stuff. They discover that, you know, there's seems to be a cursed treasure at so-called Shangri-La and they want to kind of go and find it. But it's on behalf of this interesting villain and uh, Hidari Shataro wrote into us and said, hey there, Chintamani Colin and damn Dorado Dagan. Nice. How did you feel about this entry's cast of villains? While I love Talbot's dynamic with the crew, I felt a little overwhelmed by Lazarevich's over-the-top cartoony nature. However, his dynamic with Chloe is one of the best character arcs in the game. I appreciate you both and keep on bringing hookers to church. I don't know what that means, but thank you. <laughs> Hidari Shitaro, thank you for that writing That is a in. quote from something. What is that hooker in church quote? I don't know. I'll have to think know. on that. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. 
So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. All right. So what did you make of the villains here? We have... Obviously, I guess that we should really just say villain because we've already talked about Flynn. But what did you, what did you think about Zoran Lazarevich, this sort of Eastern European character? It's funny, man. I used to kind of think that he was a lame, like one of the lamer parts of this game when yeah. I was younger. But in watching it and kind of absorbing it, I was like, I don't hate this character at all. I think what I was kind of what I was kind of bouncing it off of and and absorbing was the negative energy I felt towards the last boss fight, which I think stupid mm. and i still think that fight's stupid i just hate the idea of even uncharted having last boss fights and you can tell that they were struggling with how to end the game yeah I when they that. really could have ended it without that fight just in this crazy setup as everything's crumbling and crashing and they're just trying <laughs> to escape so i think i was kind of like melding that together but actually i like this character i love his fucking shotgun on his back i i dig and i wrote this down specifically i dig the upside down dagger like the upside down knife that oh, some yeah. soldiers have yep. like or gi joes and stuff have on their chests and all that. So I kind of like his look. And it's interesting because he's influenced by this idea of absolute power. Like he just wants this absolute power. And and the game's alternate history suggests that this power was tasted in some different way by people like Kublai Khan and Genghis Khan and certain other conquerors, but was never truly harnessed. And we, of course, discover that the Nazis were after it as well through Schaefer, which we can talk about. But um, what did you think about Lazarevich and, and kind of his motivation which is pretty single-minded and I don't think maybe the deepest. In fact, I, I would argue that the, the game, the first game is a little more sophisticated in this way. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of proof in the pudding, right? Perfect example of the game not really doing anything metaphysical or too heady, just really just a fun quest. He feels, Lazarevich feels like a campy sort of throwback to a typical 80s Russian-Serbian villain that we would right. see, the things that we grew up digesting. And I kind of like that formula though it's just again fun he's kind of that would-be genghis khan or stalin or hitler like somebody who's after this thing not for riches but for invincibility uh, right. he calls all those guys power. great men by the way he calls them all great men right yeah. so he's kind of like a descendant or a, pro, a would-be protege of these you know horrible the more some of the most horrible people that ever lived so a proper baddie some a force to be reckoned with and I like the imagery too. You know, that sawed off shotgun on his back, slung on his back. You're waiting for him to use that, that knife that's bigger than I am. It's like you, I kind of go in for that imagery. It just feels like Cobra. You know, it feels like the stuff we grew up with. It's a lot of fun. And I think, I can't help but think that stuff is fueled by, you know, this game is made by people our age. You know, it's kind of fueled by them growing up and digesting that stuff too. And I have to say, Kyle, a nod to the Flynn character that I kind of realized at a certain point, again, they didn't go too far with this character, but he was fun in that he kind of felt like the darker version of Nate, right? Nate, at the he's got the swagger. He's a fun, charming dude. He's got the charisma. But at the, at the center of it, and you're getting a little more substance from Nathan Drake now, and we see that it's not about the riches with him. It's about the quest and the passion and that genuine curiosity, the knowledge. He's a student of history. That's really what makes him tick where the Flynn character, it's really greed and darker ambitions at the center of what's motivating him. So 
it's kind of like two sides of the same coin. That's why it would have been kind of cool to see him live, I think, because it would be kind of cool to see a rivalry. I guess what they're really saying is that he didn't have the tools to, to, to live in a world like this. You have to be more like Nathan Drake in order to survive this type of lifestyle or whatever. It's, can't have the wrong-headed pursuits. But I think it would have been kind of cool to see. We never really see that in an action-adventure, serialized franchise like this, like indie, right? Where it's like he doesn't really have that rivalry with somebody of his own age, of his own ilk. It's different. Belloc's older, you know, indies. So it's like it's a, it's a different thing. And I, I think that formula would actually be really fun. And I can't think of another franchise, fictional franchise that does that. So that would have been kind of neat, I think. What did you uh, think about the inclusion of the Nazis through Schaefer and all of the rest? Of it? Did you feel like that was pertinent? I mean, we were making fun of it a little bit in the first one with the U-boat. I mean, right. those kinds, those those visuals are awesome. The U-boat in the in the jungle is a cool visual, but it's so just cool. that is so indie and. I don't I, I forgot about that actually. I, when I even saw Schaefer, I was like, what what was the angle with him and his expedition? And I didn't remember. And, and I was like, oh. It gets a God. little confusing. I I, I I was like, why didn't why did I make fun of this more at the time? I don't remember that. I would definitely <laughs> want to make fun of it now. It almost it almost I'm excited to get to Uncharted 3 because this almost reinforces, although this is a wonderful game, that Uncharted 3 is better. Oh wow, that's exciting to hear. I can't with Uncharted 3 has like one of the great Oh my god! I can't. Oh, I, I can't cannot make. wait to. There's so many. There's so many good parts of that game, but let's stay here for now. What did you make of um, of the inclusion of the Nazis? <laughs> my first thought was, "Oh, they're going to the well again with mm. this." As soon as they mentioned that, I was like, "Well, in the first one, we talked about. It. I didn't really mind it. I liked the fact that it was a throwback to the to indie and you know a clear sort of nod to the world that it's inspired by. But I it, doing it again in this one, it was like, okay, I guess it it seemed unnecessary." It, again, it didn't really bother me, though, and it does get a little confusing, the, the whole woven tapestry of the game, not just the way the treasure hunt sort of changes course, but the way the players come in and out and the origins and the backstory with Marco Polo and what really happened and the different geographic um, locations and all of that. I don't think that was helped by my sort of incessant feeling of just like, all right, I don't care. Like, I... Just let me explore this temple. Let me enter into combat again. That combat sequence on the train, for instance, was so satisfying. I just wanted to keep doing that kind of stuff. A nice, you know, really, I love the rhythm, like the first game, going between those platforming segments and the combat segments. A little bit, of, little bit more stealth to make it even a little more interesting. The puzzle sequences. I love all that. I love the way it kind of moves and the rhythm and the pacing of everything. So that's really what I wanted. I really felt like the story was getting in the way a little bit. Not so much the characters, because I love them. But the story was getting in the way. So that wasn't helping me this time. I was very sort of ADD about just like, let me get let me get back. Let me get my fingers dirty. Let me get my hands dirty. I want to get back into it, you know. So And you know what? The, the other thing, too, the game scared me a little bit. I was thinking about this in my notes. The first hour or so, I feel like the game sort of steals away control. The game takes over pretty frequently. You play a little segment and the game takes over with a, you know, a, a cinematic or a cutscene, and the game takes the wheel for, you know, pretty frequently. And I was like, oh my God, I hope the whole game is not like this because you understand the scale and the enormity of what they're doing compared to the first game with the locations and 
the way they're, you know, the chases and all these dynamic things that are happening. But luckily the game sort of lets go and relinquishes that a certain point in. And then that rhythm really takes off from that point, I'd say about an hour in. So, but the game scared me. I was like, whoa, is this going to be a lot different than the first game? Because I loved it. You know, I loved the first game so much. There's no combat, really. I mean, there's some stealth combat, but there's no meaningful combat. In fact, Drake is conspicuously anti-violent in the beginning of the game, which I found really to stand out. It's like, why the fuck do you care? And I think I think Flynn even says that, too. It's like, who are you? Dude, dude you've killed so many people. And obviously, Lazarvich confronts him with this later on, which is one of he the does. ironies of, of Uncharted, which is cool. I love it. That. I think it's. Yeah, it, I think it's necessary. I think that someone at some point has to acknowledge that Drake is not who he purports to be, although I want to tr- talk about Drake's true nature later on as well. But in terms of the combat, it's funny because you're right. The game eases into this Istanbul thing where you're just sneaking around. You're kind of killing some dudes. If you get seen, the game restarts or the chapter restarts from the last checkpoint and all the rest. And it's not until Flynn betrays you, really, that you have any real combat. And I want to say that's the fourth chapter or something. So, yeah. It does start right, slow, yeah. but I think it, it's a good it's a good burst once you get at, get going on the gameplay. And I was curious. I wanted to ask you, what did you think about the gameplay that this is obviously a major step up? I mean, you seem to have really enjoyed this third person cover based shooting. To, so talk to me about playing it. I loved it, dude. I just love it so much. It makes me think because I'm relatively inexperienced with third person and first person shooters. Is it just that I just don't have a lot of experience with a lot of them yet, but I just love it. I just think it's like the first game. It's just enough juggling between two weapons. They improve the nuance of the grenade mechanic in this one a little bit. So we have that. And it's introducing a couple of new things. The cover was a little smoother. The control was a little smoother. It was a little easy to get in and out of cover. I liked. And then little things that they add, like the propane tanks and things like that. Just if you want to, go in that direction with the combat and the fighting and experiment with those things you can just enough to maintain the amount of weapons getting ammunition restocking sort of managing your loadout just enough to be interesting without being too complicated or obtuse and i kind of marvel that this game especially i felt this way in the first game but even more so with number two that not just the gameplay but the difficulty i played on normal the difficulty was just so for me that I felt like it was pretty close to perfection in that it was easy enough, again, to be inviting and make you want to play. And I couldn't wait to sit down, kids go to bed and play every night for six or seven nights in a row. But also difficult enough to propel you with a little bit of challenge and sort of entice you to keep moving forward. I have never, I don't remember playing a game that was. We played a lot of great ones already on Knockback, but I remember a game that felt this good at that, especially on the normal difficulty where, and maybe it's just perfect for me, for my skill level and my experience, but I really had a great time. And at at a certain point, I was like, wow, they really went to great pains to lovingly craft this difficulty to make it feel very satisfying, nearly perfect, as perfect as I've ever played in a game. Now, how does it stack up for you, Kyle? Because you've played much more. Your breadth of games is, a, you know, your body of, of the games you've played is a lot larger. Yeah, the, the Uncharted games are controversial because they're not shooter first games. First of all, I think you're experiencing what I experienced 15 years ago or so, which is that I really like shooters. Like, I really like them. I think maybe you should just embrace it. You might 
like the genre, I think it kind of gets a bad rap. It's also a very, or was a very PC-centric genre. It wasn't something we were really exposed to properly right. for many generations on console. Sure. So we all came to it, I think, a little later. I think most people have come around now, but shooters are amongst the, my favorite things. I fucking love Wolfenstein. I love Doom. I love The Division and all this kind of stuff. And Micah does too. She plays Call of Duty constantly and Gears of War. So it's a really wonderful genre. Yeah. It's controversial because it's not quite as tight as its contemporaries. So, so 2009 would be like Gears of War 2 moving into almost 3 a couple of years later. And then you have other games like Kill Switch and Black, I guess, some some similar games in the PS2 era and into the PS3 era. But I feel like the game feels really good. And what's funny is that Uncharted 2 was the first game to introduce multiplayer into the, which is a mainstay now and was in 2, 3 and 4. So I think it was tight enough to have not only some competitive multiplayer aspects, which were very popular, but also this um, would later more be introduced in a major way, but kind of like horde mode st- style PVE sort of things that you can do as well with a partner or by yourself. So I think the gameplay stands out. I like the explosives. I like the grenades. I don't think the AI is incredibly smart, which I think is effective for a game like this. There, In watching the different gameplay and kind of focusing in on the different set pieces, there's that set piece when you are with Sully and he's covering you with the sniper rifle and you're kind of like gathering all the evidence from one of Lazarevich's like huts. That's like a really frenetic and fun section of the game. You brought up the train, which we'll talk about momentarily because that's a really important part of the game. But even when you get to the temples and you're like climbing up the temples and looking for Schaefer's men and all of this and you're fighting the bad, the, the Yeti looking creatures that are actually just people in disguise, very the village M night Shyamalan type thing. Spoiler. Sorry. So let me ask you about the going to the Southeast Asia sort of stuff before we get into the specifics of more of the gameplay and some of these awesome parts like the train. What do you think about exploring Nepal and Tibet and these kinds of areas that of the world that I find quite fascinating? Because there's something about even the, the language, whatever it is, the text that they write, it's visually representative to me of this melding of Asian and... I guess what you would call maybe Indian or subcontinent kind of sensibilities. So, you know, like when you look at an, an Asian text and you can say like, I, I can look at Japanese, Chinese, Korean, et cetera. And I can tell you what they are. Vietnamese, like I can tell you what each of them are. It's no problem. Right. I can't read them, but you can just right, tell. Right, right. Korean has circles in it and Vietnamese looks like this and all that. And you can kind of see like, you know, like the the evolutionary models that they would show where it's like, you know, the ape and he's walking and he's walking and he's walking and then he's human. And in between, there's like all these interstitials of like sure. the ape who's kind of a human and the human who's kind of an ape. And, and I, I look at the language specifically and all the writing and the, and the, um, the culture, the flags, the colors, the statues and statuettes and the carvings. It's like this melding of, of from a layman's perspective. I don't know anything about this part of the world, really maybe more than the average bear, but not very much is it just it's like the it's a perfect mixture of indian and asian and there's something very appealing about it plus it's not the proper use of the word alpine because it's not in europe but it's very alpine like it's i like the mountains i like the snow i like the 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 craters and the valleys and the the sharp edges and the i don't know there's something there's something about this part of the world that i really love this is the most memorable part of the game to me is that it takes place in this part in this section of the world? Like, do you know those colorful flags that are all stitched together? Yeah, that are. Sure. I think I don't know if they're Nepalese or from Tibet, but that was the first time I had ever seen that. And and I was like, that's what that is. I had no, you know when we talk about how games teach you things like all the yes, time, like absolutely. words and shit. That was like, I was like, oh, that's what that. The only reason <laughs> I know what that is is because of Uncharted Two. So, talk to me about 
exploring this part of the world. And if you kind of vibe with this idea I had, which is it's not quite Asian, but it's it's not quite Indian. It's it's its own thing. It's and that's really cool. And it's funny how it's so visually representative of these two cultures physically colliding in this space. That's a great point. That's a really, really great point. It does feel like that. And I think it always did, even dating back to the late 70s, early 80s with Raiders. And I love the way Nepal is a direct nod to, to Raiders. And just having that sort of exotic, those colorful locales and, and, and having Nate somewhere in places now coming out of the first game that are inhabited places, but not part of the Western world. So you still have sort of, you could be in a, in a village where people dwell. Or you could be in a downtown area or hotel in a part of this world. So you're having that sort of urban warfare thing, component, but also in an exotic place. So it's a it's a great sort of meshing of the two things. And in the first game, I think, as I remember, the only indoor places you were allowed to explore or do combat or do the platforming was in the temples. And stuff like that. So now to be in somebody's apartment, be in somebody's hut, to be in a, a hotel building, be on the top deck with the bar, the roof bar and the pool and everything like that. So fun, so memorable, and really made the game, the scale of the game feel large. You know, when you're on that rooftop pool area and you're about to rappel down and all of these other things, like it's just, it feels massive. You know, it feels like you could look for miles. And I wonder how, you know, for me, it just, it holds up. I think it's beautiful. The one thing this game did call is for me is, and it, it, it occurs to me when I play games, certainly when we watch movies and watch TV shows too, but especially with games, if something is, if, if the overall experience is not taking you out of that experience, in other words, if the graphics are working, if the animation is right, if the atmosphere feels believable, if the mechanics of the game feel smooth and fluid. In other words, just letting you enjoy the experience and really letting you get immersed. That's what this game did for me. In fact, I would stop and look around and be like, wow, holy shit. Like, let me stop. I'm enjoying myself so thoroughly. Let me just stop for a second and look at this vista. You know what I mean? The graphics hold up. There's, you know, you're having environmental impact in the rainy puddles and through the snow and the way it's getting on Nate's pants and all that kind of thing. But you realize like everything is just working in tandem, the design, the animation, the atmosphere, the, you know, the particles, the effects, the music, the sound effects, everything's working in tandem to just give you this experience. And you're almost taking all of those lovingly crafted things for granted. This game really did that for me. And I couldn't help but think like, wow, this really holds up 13 years on how, how well it really holds up. And that really just speaks to how good the game must have seemed when it came out in October of 2009, I can only imagine. Oh yeah, we were enamored with this game, especially because it looks so much better than the original one. Like they, f and in, in my history of Naughty Dog that I did, they talk about how Uncharted 2 is a, a chance for them to kind of fix. I mean, that's the amazing thing is that they did it in two years and they look at it as like, oh, we can finally like fix things and do what we want to do. It's like, how did you make, I still don't understand how they made the game so quick. It's, that's it's insane. Fucking, it's, it's insanity. And they did it again with Uncharted 3, which was also made in two years. That was two years. So, wow. And and then they made The Last of Us. I mean, at that point, Uncharted, it doesn't matter, but Naughty Dog split into two teams at that part at that point. So Naughty Dog okay. had Uncharted 3 and The Last of Us in development at the same time. That's when Justin Richardson came in and directed that game. And it, it, that's a whole thing. We'll get to that at, at that point. But 
I look at Uncharted 2, it's funny because it reminds me, and we said this over and over again, there are so many moments in gaming where it's like, you can't get better any better than this. When is it ever going to look any better than this? I think this is running at, I, on PS3 in like 720 or something like that. It's like, like when is it ever going to get better than Uncharted 2? When is it ever going to get better than Bioshock? And now we're playing games like I was playing Forbidden West, the New Horizon game, and it's like, holy fucking mackerel, man. I can't wait I to mean, crack I, that I, one. I, it's, it's nuts. I mean, I don't even know. You have to play it on a, a 4K TV, You have like an OLED TV. It's just, it's so necessary. The darkest blacks and the whitest whites, and it's just so beautiful. And it's just funny how this, this medium, much like film, I think challenges you over and over again to check your expectations, be like, oh, that's nothing. Like, I remember when I saw 2015, I think it was 2015 Mad Max. Okay. That Fury Road movie. Fury I don't know Road, if you saw sure. that or not. Yeah. I walked out of that theater and I was like, that is the most incredible thing I have ever seen in my entire life. Vision and I still message. feel like it is like one of yeah. the most incredible feats of practical filmmaking I've ever seen in my entire life. But one day I think that someone will come out of nowhere and be like, oh, look at this. Yes. And and I feel like that's uncharted, too, in a lot of different ways. And there are other games and there are other products that will do that. But I always think about Mad Max when I was like, holy mother of God. How did you do that? I couldn't even believe how good that movie was. It's amazing. For as good as everyone said that movie was, it's even better. Yeah. And and I yeah. think that and I think that people say that on I feel I think that people feel that way about Uncharted too. So there's a little bit of a connection there. But That's though funny. I know that character is more important to you than story, I'm wondering what you thought about the voice performances. Um, you know, we, we haven't talked about Elena yet, we will, but what do you think about Nolan North and Claudia Black and all these guys? I just, you know, Steve Valentine does Harry Flynn. You said like it has almost no I think you said it's absurd or something like it has no right to be as good as it is. This is the stuff you get from motion capture and yes. making your characters act outside of a booth. It's just the way it is. And in fact, I'm playing Lego Star Wars, the Skywalker saga right now, and I keep making fun of it to Micah because. First of all, the voice acting, you know, like everyone's a little bit off, like it's like a bad impression of Jar Jar Binks and like a okay. bad impression. Qui-Gon Jinn that. sounds like Sean Connery for some reason. I have no idea why that is. But I, I was telling her, I'm like, listen to the NPCs. They definitely didn't do what I'm, I'm going to complain about with the main characters. But I'm like, listen to the NPCs. Like, this sounds like a dude recorded this in his closet because it was during COVID. Like, there, there are all these concessions okay. being made. Yes. And you can tell because our expectations are higher now in gaming. In 2009, they weren't very high. So this was extraordinary, not only from an animation standpoint. It doesn't, you, you know, Drake doesn't look beautiful it does not fantastic but it just comes out the way they interact the ending between nolan and emily when they're kind of jibber jabbing back and forth i wonder if that's even just totally you know impromptu so yes what did you think about the performances specifically drake who you know shout out to nolan north i just think he's so wonderful he's just oh such, he's so good dude he rules i mean he's just it's guy. not hyperbole like that guy is just masterful at voiceover yeah, the voices to a person are amazing in this game. They lend so much gravitas. And you're right, there's a real naturalism to the recording. And I love Naughty Dog's commitment to having watching the making of stuff for Uncharted 2. They, they had a real commitment to the voice actors recording in the same room and that interaction, which is not fashion forward for me. That's right-headed you want to have a natural conversation and dialogue and feel like these characters know each other and there's a relationship get them recording in the same room these are actors so beautifully written lines 
could wash up against really awesome improving, and you have that sort of richness when you set up your recording like that. And it's really, really important. And, you know, I think also with the animation in this, how well it held up for the broad action, for the running and the jumping and the shooting and the hiding and the somersaulting and all that kind of stuff, really well done. But yeah, the mocap blended with the animation, the animators sort of taking the baton beyond the mocap, really rich and nuanced acting in this very believable and a very nice blending of the voices with that natural acting, very believable acting that you would very rarely see in the game. Now, of course, you have the uncanny stuff with the faces and things like that. You're talking about a game that's 13, 14 years old now. That's inevitable. You know, you have that evolution and we have that barometer. We have that keen eye, 2022 eye, but it holds up remarkably well. And I think they did a great job of even taking that uncanny stuff and sort of hiding it where they could and just really making for a, an experience that holds up over a dozen years later. That's hard to do. We talk about that a lot on the show, but really beautiful. And the voice acting just again to a person it's, I love when the voice actors get it and they just really, you could see in the performances that they really understand their characters. They really get under the skin of these characters. And again, I love it when it's, it's sort of proof in the pudding when you don't have, again, you don't, this isn't Shakespeare. There's nothing crazy going on that you haven't seen before. You have your baddies, you have a little would-be love triangles, you have the, you know, the good guys, you have the you have the heroes, you have the swagger, you have the charisma, all these things. But when you have a simple formula and you're still putting performances that feel this great, I think that even lends a bit more credence to, you know, the artfulness. And it's just I was really, I was really taken by it. I was even before watching the making of stuff and getting to know the actors and the players a little bit better, just knowing inherently in the, in just playing the game that, wow, these characters, these people really understood their characters and made an effort to make these characters feel believable and appealing, very appealing, even the bad guys. So, you know, that's, that, that's a lot that, that takes a lot. I think a lot of that comes through just in Amy Hennig's insistence on focusing on just a few key players i think it, it there's not there's nothing diluted i think everything feels like it belongs there there's no waste great point in any way but i wanted to uh bring in elena now we haven't brought her in yet we're talking about the other love love triangle first of all i'm curious if you expected to see her in this one and because they, they 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 basically don't mention her at all i mean she doesn't even come up and then you kind of find her and i think they do something very important in this game with elena which is and they did it in the first one, too, but there's something special about her character because from the very beginning, they reinforce this idea that she is apart from Drake. She is her own thing. She has her own ambitions. She has her own slyness. She has her own brain in her head. She's here for her own reason. And and obviously, they're, in, in fact, in the first Uncharted, they're much more in, intertwined naturally than they are in the second one. And I love how they introduce her and she's just going after this madman on her own. Like, it's not like has anything to do with Drake. Now, is it a little small world? Sure. But it's cool that they run into each other and she's with this mysterious cameraman, Jeff, and she's just chasing after Lazarevich for her own reasons. And she knows it's dangerous. And so, and and, and it's funny because Chloe is kind of the, Chloe's the only one that doesn't know that because the audience knows and Elena and Drake know, but she's not, she's the only one that doesn't know that, oh, actually this chick can, 
hold her own and is pretty badass. And, and it's acknowledged later when she takes one of the Lugers off of one of the dead Nazis, one of Schaefer's party and, and gives it to her to use. I like that they do that for Elena. So she, in other words, she's her existence in the series is not contingent as as Nate's as Nate's um, love interest only. She she exists above and beyond Nate. And I do like at the end when Chloe tells Nate to tell, you know, she's like, you know, tell Elena that you love her. And he he presumably does, but you don't see it, which I think is cool. Like it, it's you're expecting that and it just doesn't happen, which I think is really neat. So talk to me a little bit about Elena. And, and, and yeah, at the top is did you expect to see her? You know, I was thinking about her a lot as I started the game. You got this other this other gal who's obviously another romantic interest. Is Elena going to pop up? And I think after a while, I just gave up that notion of, I guess she's not going to be in this one. And then just as you start thinking that, she pops up with her cameraman. It was so cool to see her. And yeah, you know, she's a proper sort of companion, a proper mate for Drake because she's just about as intelligent as he is. I love the courage. I love the pluckiness. I love the fact that it's a very realistic relationship. And sometimes it seems like she's the voice of reason. And sometimes it seems like Nate's the voice of reason. And it kind of goes back and forth. It's a little bit of a juggling act there. They're, they're proper contemporaries. And I think that's awesome. And you could really see them working with each other. And I love the way that she calls Nate out too on shit. You know, she says when he's being annoying or when he's being stubborn or that kind of thing. It's a lot of fun, and I love the fact that they did develop towards the end of the game. You have that romance being rekindled, obviously, but you know it's done with that sort of gentle touch. You know, the playful banter. It's not cheesy, and again, I think that comes down to the voice acting too. It's just a really great relationship. And again, I love the way the way it seems realistic, and what you said too about her being her own person. She has her own her own bent. She has her own career. She's certainly not a treasure hunter, but you could see someone with these tools being paired with someone like Nate, who's this notorious treasure hunter. So, you know, it just works. It's just super, again, nothing, nothing too crazy or complex. It's not Hemingway, but it's just fun. No, I, I totally agree. It it works. It was good to see her. Again, I, I wish I can go back and remember what it was like to play it for the first time. It's just been so so very long but it almost feels like it couldn't be uncharted without her i think this is kind of when it it starts and obviously she's the main player in the other games too i mean that's that's no surprise to anyone there but it is cool to see her pop back up jeff of course meets an untimely end connor <laughs> writes jeff. in and says r.i.p jeff the cameraman we hardly knew ye." i remember when the game came out that that was like a joke, Jeff. And I think Jeff was like a multiplayer skin too, so you can like play as him. But oh, that's hilarious. But I do. What did you think about the the Jeff scene? Just in the, the Jeff death. Just in that, it's pretty brutal. Like because it, it shows Lazarevich is like I don't give a fuck, you know. About, about, and he does it obviously to his own soldier later on. But yeah. <laughs> I knew that what soldier did, was dead. The moment, yeah, it's like the moment what, what he did walked you, in. What did you think about Jeff dying? I mean, did you have any any thoughts about that? It, it is he's like a cult character, so it's funny to talk about. Well. Fans of the franchise love Elena, right? So when you first meet her and she's coupled with a dude, already you're like, sort of like, oh, what? Like she's with this other guy. So you're immediately kind of angry for Nate. But then you realize it's sort of platonic and he's just the, and just the cameraman. But I, I'll tell you what I love about the Jeff character. And, you know, Jeff, we hardly knew thee. But I love that whole sort of amplified escort mission where Nate's sort of dragging him through 
you know, he's he's mortally wounded and um Chloe and Elena are basically doing the combat while Drake just kind of running and gunning while he's dragging this dude along. <laughs> so fun. Again, like just the 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 ideas, like the concepts for things like that. Just having Jeff in the game for that scene was enough. I love that. You know, just thinking creatively outside the box and what could we do in this scene? And no two chapters are alike. You always have something different going on. They really, I mean, they really got imaginative. It was, you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop from chapter to chapter and you're never disappointed. Totally. I totally agree. And you're right. That that scene is really special because it's not just another escort scene. It's not like you're just waiting for a waypoint to, to kind of guide along or anything like that. And there's so many cool parts of the game, like the helicopter scenes when it's just destroying everything and you're jumping from roof to roof. There's so many just great action scenes. And yeah, it does end for an un, un, with an untimely death for him. But I do like, and I am curious that I was going to ask you this at the end, but it, it kind of makes more sense now, which is Chloe and Elena kind of represent the devil and the angel on Drake's shoulder. And Drake proves himself, I think, over and over again to just be like pure good, like chaotic good kind of yes character where he's always making the sacrifice. He's like willing to Chloe and Chloe kind of shows a dark side. I mean, we forget about it in the later games, but she's like, leave Jeff behind. Like, what is going on? Like, fuck this. And all and over and over again. And and it brings out this this again, this chaotic goodness in in Nate that seems almost unbelievable. I, I wonder what you think about about that this this idea that Nate just is good it almost seems unbalanced to and and Lazarvich brings up later it seems unbalanced to the to the reality of the way he acts but he has like this code this ethic and that's where the name of the game I think kind of comes from is like honor among thieves but what what did you make of that or did you make anything of that because I think that that those two characters really bring that to the fore intentionally Definitely. And you know, that's true. That's a really important thing to mention about the Chloe character in the, especially in the exchange with Jeff dying is that, you know, is Chloe, is this potential at that point in the game? Is she this femme fatale? Is she really cold blooded or is she just at best pragmatic or a little detached? Is she a survivor? You know, where Nate much, much more selfless. And that really comes out more, a lot more in this game where, you know, you kind of see him as this Indiana Jones, Han Solo, scoundrel type, right? Likeable, appealing, but, you know, what's his end game? He's a treasure hunter. He's a thief. He's sort of a cut up. Um, he seems very irreverent, right? But in this game, you get a little more of that sort of the Nate that's willing to sacrifice, that's willing to kind of stick his neck out for his friends, that's able to put aside the treasure hunt to go after the baddie. And, you know, maybe even you could argue save the world in this game. So you get a little more of that, of the depth of this character now where it's a little less surface and a little more substance. And that's a proper way to sort of evolve a hero in a franchise. And you come out of Uncharted 2 liking Nathan Drake even more, which, you know, that's how you want that's how you want a franchise to progress. One other thing that I think this game did a really interesting decision, which some TV shows and movies do, and I think this is cool. And in fact, it's what I said that would have been interesting to do in Metal Gear Solid 3 when I said that, like, why aren't people speaking in Russian? And it would be kind of like you'd be maybe even ignorant of some of what they're saying is that right. the Tenzin, so the Sherpa character you meet, who's like Schaefer's companion or whatever in that village, he doesn't speak English at all. 
And I actually looked up. I don't remember ever looking it up, so I don't think I ever did. But I actually looked up everything he said. Like I, I looked up oh, the shit. actual translations of what he says. And he's it's it's interesting. Like when he's giving the tea, he's like, it's good for you. Like, drink it. OK, I'm going to go get it's like he's saying totally normal things. And it's it's funny that he starts calling him Drake and you can kind of hear it. And it's in his like it's like in, in his particular accent. Yeah, I was going to call it weird, but that's not really, you know, nice. And then <laughs> <laughs> and then uh. And they have this like interaction with each other and they kind of understand each other. They even have that crazy fight where Tenzin almost dies. Yeah. What did you make of that decision to have this character in which you can't really communicate, which is kind of the anti Drake in that way? Because Drake is always, you know, wisecracking. It's funny because he makes jokes about like how he's like being sent on this thing and he can't even speak to this dude at all and has no idea what's going on. Tenzin does this thing where he's trying to. Drake's trying to get information out of like what is he what is he scared of why does he have this knife and he does like the claw thing or whatever and Drake has like no idea what he's talking about I really enjoyed that aspect of it I don't think I really took that in as much as I probably should have the first times that I played the game back in the day that this character Tenzin is you just can't communicate with him and yet you understand him um, the interactions with him are endearing you like him you're hoping that he lives he does which is good and so what did you make of that character anything yeah, you know that's a great that's a great way to look at the character. You already mat- you like him automatically because he nurses Drake back to health, right? And you know, I think also it was really cool and really brave to have all that. You're right, like have all those exchanges in a different language, not have it subtitled. There's some exposition with Nate kind of repeating what Tenzin says, so you get the gist and all that kind of thing. But I love that it sort of ratcheted it up and dialed up the danger of them exploring the that sort of snowy tundra mountain snowy mountains together because you have two guys together who can't even understand each other and then you come across that sort of danger really gets amplified you come across the pack of dead wolves they intimate that snowy ice monster wampa like creature and you're like these two guys that can't even communicate are going to have to contend with all these dangers I like that. I like the way that it made it feel even more. It really ratcheted up the tension and the drama because these guys, these guys have to work together, but yet they came and understand a word each other is saying kind of a neat little formula for just for drama. Yeah, I agree. I I dug that decision. I don't don't know why I didn't take that in more when I was younger, but as far as the game is concerned, we've talked about the the gunplay, but I I was curious how you felt about the beat to beat puzzle solving and, the mechanic of the journal and notebook and all of that. Now, this is, of course, a, a staple of Uncharted going back to the first game and, and still to this day. I don't feel like Uncharted games are that challenging, but I always I just hate puzzles. I just hate them. I don't know why I just hate doing them. I, I, because, first of all, I know they exist to slow the player down. I mean, just from a design standpoint, that's sure. true. I mean, I, I just know games too well, I think, at this point to. And that's totally fine. Sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't. But watching it as a passerby instead of playing, it, I was like, man, it's so funny because the game is moving so quickly. And then they're like, no, you're going to stay here now. Uh, we we put all this time and love into this massive monastery and you're going to see every fucking inch of it probably for way too long. <laughs> so I remember I had to solve those puzzles and write the guide for it and everything. But I got to be honest with you, when I encounter games puzzles like some of the more complicated puzzles in games like this, I just look up at the solution online. I'm like, I'm not doing this. Like, I'm just not... You know, like the statues that got seven arms and they have to all point in a different direction. And you got the fucking mirror. You, you won't even pointing. do those. I'm, I'm just like, I, I'll try at the beginning, but I'm just like, at this point, a game, you know, Arrival of Uncharted, which is the new Crystal Dynamics Tomb Raider games, had something very cool in the third game. Actually, so it would be Idos Montreal's Tomb Raider, 
Okay. Which is Shadow of the Tomb Raider, where they had a they had different difficulty settings for all these different things. And one of them was puzzles, which I thought was super cool, where it's like, you like hard gunplay? Cool. Like, just skip the puzzles? Yeah, great. All right, fine. Fuck the puzzles. Oh, well, so I'll have the, like the hard gunplay and all of this, or you can do it the opposite way, or you can do story mode, or... And I dug that. It's not it's not a game problem. It's just a me problem. I don't play. I say this over and over again. Ad nauseum on sacred. I do not play games to solve puzzles. Like I don't. I don't. I'm not here to fucking solve problems. I, I, don't, I, I find that annoying and daunting. You can do Wordle. I, I, right. I, I, like, exactly. It's like I want to play a fucking adventure, a point and click adventure game where I have to just click on everything. And like, does the key go in the door? Does the key go in the treasure chest? Do I put the key in my pocket and leave the room? Do I? I'm like, I don't want to do this. That's life. So. Um, what did you think about the puzzle solving aspects of Uncharted 2? Well, you got to know what you like. So I appreciate you for that. And I I got to say what you were speaking to about sort of custom tailoring your gameplay experience is a, is a really, that's intriguing. I like that. I like the yeah, idea it's dope, of that. Because I like hard gunplay. Like, yes. I like that a lot. But I don't want the whole game to be that hard. So you want to dial yeah. that up, but you want right. to dial the puzzles back. And you kind of just want to kind of have it your way, a little Burger King. Right, sure, exactly. Know. Which I like that. I like that idea too. I, you know, for me, I like the variety of having the journal mechanic. I like the way it works in tandem with the temples and with the puzzles. I think it's a very logical thing to integrate into a game like this where you're exploring these ancient temples and you have to solve these puzzles to get to which get relics and gain passage and all that kind of stuff. It just works in this world, in this Indiana Jones esque world. But I think I would like actually to do the opposite of what you say, Kyle, if, and now I don't know what happens with Uncharted beyond the first two games, but if you could make these games longer and that would work, let's say you make an Uncharted game that's 25 hours long. I would even, I wouldn't even mind slowing down longer to sort of try to solve puzzles that were maybe even a little more complex, but the way it is, in, in part one and, and the way it was in part one and the way it is in part two, I liked that the puzzles were just difficult enough, and I say difficult in air quotes, to slow you down and control the pace just enough. You know, they were pretty easy. It just adds another thing to do besides the platforming, besides the combat, besides the cutscenes and the, the cinematics. And I like the way it kind of, again, I like the way it kind of works with the world. I think it's a nice... I think it's a nice way to add to the experience, but I would love to see them do more with it. You know, I would love to, it almost seems like in this one, it almost seemed like a little bit of an afterthought. There was only maybe three sequences. Where we really had to solve something and just, again, consulting the journal and then just figuring out the sequence and all that. Yeah. These big thing. set pieces, you can tell that they spent a, a ton of time, big on. set pieces. It's true. They're like a they big were huge. I mean, it, to their credit, they are huge. They're great. Oh, they're huge. Yeah, they're huge. And, they, you know, they, it's true. The visuals that they craft in order to go along with these sequences are, you know, a big component of, of, of the animation and the graphics. But, yeah, I think I, for, for me, it worked. I, I understand what you're saying, though. It, it could get aggravating, again, if you're kind of, if your blood is boiling and you really want, you, you know, you're just amped to keep going forward. Sometimes slowing down isn't what you want, if you're, especially for players like you and I who enjoy the the combat aspects, I think. Yeah, it, it's funny, man, because, yeah, I would have just liked more and more combat. It doesn't make sense, though. You, a guy like Drake needs to solve the puzzle and you need to do it yourself. Right. So I'm not saying Uncharted should be something else. I just it's one of those things. I'm not smart enough for these games. I'm just not a sophisticated gamer in any way. I, I'm very self-deprecating in that way, but I'm just 
I just want to beat things up and like shoot things and slash at things. That's why I can't oh, Elden Ring my 20 hours with Elden Ring. I'm like, I can't do this. It's, it, it's just I, I don't have I don't want to fucking watch the frame, you know, watch every frame and cancel roll through the attack. And then it's like I'm like, I'm not, I yeah. just want to hit the, the fucking square button, dude. That's not fun for you. Yeah, like, I, yeah. I don't which is weird because I like my I'm, I'm just I like my hard games to be 2D because then I feel like it's a little fair for There's my simple difference. mind. There's a difference. I hear you. All right, Dig, let's talk about that train sequence. Finally, Joey mm. Gondoliger wrote in and said, Brothers Moriarty, how absolutely iconic is that train level? In an era where so many third-person shooters stuck to a simple level path, Uncharted 2 introduced this level about two-thirds of the way through the game, where you climb up, over, around, and through this one piece of architecture as the scenery subtly changes from greenery to snowy. Pair that with an incredible helicopter fight and having the level end where the game began, and you have all at an all-time moment in PlayStation history right there. While the graphics in this game are definitely superb and that opening is iconic, when I think of Uncharted 2, this is what I think of the most. All I can say is thank God for tunnels, indeed. <laughs> Subtle is the right word with the train sequence, which is a famous gameplay sequence, design sequence that I think I could be wrong. I think Neil Druckmann helped design. And it's an absolutely bonkers idea. When you watch it, it doesn't look as good as you think it looks. But when you're playing it, because like, like, especially on the PS3, like there's all these bamboo forests, but they're just pieces of geometry. Like there's nothing really there. And if you, I remember sitting there, like if you just sit there, like it'll just repeat. Ad nauseum. I was I wondering it, I, about this. I don't think it ever like just kills you or something like that. So it, that's the kind of shit I used to try when I would like write guides. It's like, what happens if you do this? Okay. And so I love how you're like slowly getting through and you're dodging the different turn, the different signals, and then the enemies are coming up, and then you're going back into the train, and you're having fist fights, and then you're finding new weapons, and then you're going through crates, and then you get, yeah, you get sucked into this crazy tunnel, and then you come out, and now you're just in the mountains. It's a, it's fucking awesome. And the mountain part, the point, you know, it's all leading up to the crash of the train, like we said earlier, and yet you're still totally invested in thinking, like, well, we know how it ends, but how do we get there? It's all about the journey. It's what we always say on the show about what makes so much fiction good. It's about that journey, and that that sequence is just absolutely stellar it's there's something about naughty dog that's just way better and i say this all the time there's just something about naughty dog that's way better than almost every other developer it, it's not even close sometimes and i think that one of those things is just like yeah we're gonna do this there's more even than that and you could tell by the way they repeat things like that there's a lot of cool driving sequences so they want to make sure they got that tech in a couple times you know you want to utilize everything you're making you could tell that they made this train stuff and they're like let's use it i mean let's use it we figured out how to make it work and we're going to use it and then, of course, the other kind of third technical thing that I think they added in Uncharted 2 was the the falling floors and like the helicopters destroying things or like at the end of the game in Shambhala, everything's falling and the earthquakes God. and you're jumping around. So there's a lot of like that's why they're repeating things and using things for long periods of time. I don't want to be like I don't want to give them too much credit. They're doing it because they're like, we need to get a 15 hour game out of this. We don't want to use the train sequence we worked on for six months for 10 minutes. Right. So there's that, too. But it is a wonderful sequence. I, I know you wanted to talk about it, so talk to me about how you felt about it. I mean, dude, talk about a set piece. So impressive. I mean, an absolute feat of orchestration and gameplay from a game-making perspective. I mean, you think that immediately, even somebody that doesn't make video games, you're just like, holy shit, how did they do this? What a pleasure. And it just goes on and on. And there's so much, not so much, but there, there's a lot to it that makes it enjoyable when you really think about it. You have the combat, which I which I find generally very enjoyable in this game. 
the fact that you could platform, you could go on top of the trains, you could stay inside the trains, you could kind of go in and out. So you have some options as a little bit of a choose your own adventure element, even though it's also linear, which is very clever. And then you have the other elements of dealing with the helicopter gunships, dealing with the gun turrets, dealing with the various soldiers, dealing with the armored soldiers, all of that. And then also it, it, it forces you to reckon with the signals, you know, dodging the train signals, dodging the, the tunnels. There's just so much clever stuff that just makes sense. But you're like, wow, how did they make this all work? How did they make it so fluid and enjoyable? And you don't want it to end. And I think the most important thing, which you said, which I'm not even sure, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but I'm not even sure I even realized at the time because I was enjoying the experience so much, is that if you think back to the opening of the game, you know this doesn't end well unless there's a second train ride. And why would there be a second train ride? So you know how this is going to end and it's still super compelling. Um, I can't wait. This is maybe the top game I've played in the last three or four years where I can't wait to go back and play it again because I could just see the replay value being so satisfying. I can't see this game getting old. And, you know, this train sequence, I'll always remember. I mean, I was I talking... I mean, I talk about smiling from ear to ear, right? I think I was talking out loud. You know, as I was like, holy shit, are you kidding me? Like, just, you would think there was three other people in the room playing with me. Everybody was asleep. It was 11 o'clock at night. And it, that that joyfulness... And that's what gaming is for me. You know, that that is at the very heart of an experience like this. This is why we play games, to have an experience like this. Certainly. And, it, you know, I, I, I'll i never forget it because it was just like, wow. And also, you know, just to know everybody talking about Uncharted for the last 15 years, it's like, wow, now I'm finally under, able to understand what all the fuss is about. I say that a lot when we do these shows. But that's a very satisfying element of doing these for me. It's like, wow, I could see what all the what all the, the hullabaloo sure. is about. And totally. it makes sense. Totally. And that's why I think this game is so special and so historical is because it it did meet the hype. It was a very hyped game. Everyone loved it. It won all the game of the years and you know, awards and all the all I the rest of it. And they they did it. They really did it. This game is is vital to PlayStation's and it, it's vital to its entire personality as a, a platform. <laughs> Is, is Nathan Drake and Uncharted like it's that's why when they kind of put Uncharted away after Uncharted 4 and, and Lost Legacy so that was 2016 and 2017 and there are, there are rumors that they're making another game I'm um, not Naughty Dog but some other studio is, is making a game like another Uncharted game and you'll understand if you played Uncharted 4 you'll understand probably what it is so you'll understand at some point but it, it was sad when they're like yeah we want to move on and it's like but this feels like the one thing that you probably shouldn't walk away from. Like if, if there's anything you shouldn't walk away from, it's this, this almost James Bond, like, and I'm, I don't mean bond in terms of the character. I just mean this, this replicable, repeatable formula that no one's going to get tired of. Like you can just make these, this game every three or five years. I, I and make another one. Like, I, I don't, I don't think there's, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing, but there's also such a thing as like walking away from something before it's time. Mm. we talk about that with shovel knight and yacht club like i think they made a huge mistake with that and i think they, they kind of paid the price by not releasing more shovel knight this is a bigger example of that so but i want to ask you a couple more questions before we wrap up one of the things you know very indie like is the supernaturalism in the game and fine distinguished gentleman wrote in and said hey fellas i know nate barely avoiding death is a little out there and unrealistic but the, the supernatural elements with yetis and the blue bullet sponges pull you out of the game <laughs> 
So I actually dug this. The idea that Marco Polo was totally wrong, like everything that they were chasing after was totally wrong. They figured this out. There's a little bit of a hint where they talk about how the natives have these like black teeth that are caused by the ultimately caused by them eating this resin. But they discover when they discover the tree in Shambhala and all of this, that it's actually not a, a jewel at all, but rather this this resin. And we know that there's a supernaturalism to it. But I like how they fake the supernaturalism, which, again, reminds me a little bit of The Village, which is a yeah. movie you and I really like. Right. Where I feel like they get ahead of themselves and they say, well, there is a supernatural element, but we're not going to. It's not what you think it is. Right. And so you see the monsters and the creatures and then the mask comes off. But you can tell that the people underneath are blue and all fucked up. They're not like normal human. Right. So I didn't really mind it. Like, I felt like it was kind of. I don't mind supernaturalism. I don't really know how this works without. An element of that, unless it's just straight up treasure hunting, which is cool. And I don't think Drake ever gets involved in any of this stuff for any reason other than treasure he wants to get rich in fact there's like well that's kind of a throwaway line but when sully breaks him out of the turkish prison he says i spent all your money and most of mine so they're 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 talking about how they're broke too like they they're kind of compelled it's not like just an adventure like they're having fun like this is what he does and but i don't mind the supernatural stuff as a component of that i just don't think i don't think it ever really gets out of control and I think it's the last boss fight, which we'll talk about, that kind of ruins. It gets a little too far. But like yeah. the idea of the Shambhala, this like hidden valley village and all these interesting natives that are kind of protecting it in order to stop people from abusing the power, which is interesting. I don't mind that at all. What did you think of it? Give me the supernatural stuff. You know, I love that. In the first one, we had those sort of zombie-like cave-dwelling monsters, and they explained it by, yeah, these are the genetically mutated people that the nazis were creating underground in these labs right right so when you come across this wampa this empire strikes back wampa snow monster thing you're like how are they going to explain this thing you know is this an actual monster is the game going there and you know don't forget you have something like we talk about indiana jones a lot in these uncharted conversations but we have things like raiders of the lost ark right another supernatural tie-in could be if you're going to go the religious route, right? You have the Ark of the Covenant. You have the wrath of God coming out and melting the bad guys' faces off at the end. You know what I mean? So that's another way to involve if you want to do the supernatural thing. Right. In this one, they kind of dispelled it. Well, these things were guardians. These people, these once people were guardians of this area, you know, sort of devised to drive off the, on, you know, curiosity, onlookers, treasure hunters, trespassers, whatever. And they wore these, I don't know what it, it looks like a cross between Ridley Scott's Satan from um, what's that? What's that movie that Helene loves? Uh, the one with Tom Cruise, Legend. Oh, oh Legend. And, and oh, a yeah. Wampa. That's what that thing looked like to me. And it turns out there's actually monsters underneath. So it was a monster wearing a monster suit. I don't. But you know, it was just fun. Like, give me the cartoony stuff. It's it's fine. I don't mind that there's a blue monster underneath the ice monster, the, the Wampa costume. It's kind of. It's kind of fun, and you that's enough ex- explanation for me. That's enough exposition. These things were sort of defending this place from people that would come and run afoul of it, right? That would come and, yeah. and loot and plunder. It's neat. Yeah, they're guardians of this this hidden power. I'd like, I'd like to know more about the taste. First of all, I mean, the, they could have gotten a taste of the power, I think, because the resin that they burned in the museum was some of that stuff. Right. So it's assumed that again with the cons and everything that they got some of it 
it would have been cool to know how that all worked. Yeah, some backstory that maybe not. I mean, it's not. Yeah, really they didn't really go into that, did they? No, like, like what? How how much of a taste did they get? How much power did they get from it? It's cool to it's insinuate like these great warlords. Actually, there was more to it than that. Like right. Genghis Khan didn't just conquer Asia; he did it with a little bit of help. I like I like that. Right? It's kind of lame because it, it removes the extraordinary nature of the man, but it's also okay. Well, it's like a little supernatural piece. It's like ancient yeah, aliens true. type shit, you know. And it's not this five thousand pound sapphire, as it turns out. It's a little disappointing that it's not the five thousand pound jewel. Yeah, that would be cool as hell. Yeah, it's just a giant thing of amber that there, you know, basically makes this primordial ooze of, I don't know, superpower invincibility well, whatever let's talk about that anthony c wrote in <laughs> said hey guys it's been a while since i played uncharted 2 but i remember that the final boss fight is stupid as hell <laughs> why did they have us fight a giant serbian warlord in a three-phase boss fight like we were fighting bowser in a super mario game thanks for the hours and hours of great content and remember that chloe frazier is the best girl very contentious i don't agree oh, actually i think i think okay. elaine is the best wow that is contentious but that is that i mean that's that's a, not, not an uncommon thought in fact i mean it's not a spoiler chloe is in the uncharted movie like, because that oh. movie's all that movie's all mixed up, like with just grabbing different elements of the games, and she's okay. in it, which is kind of cool. Oh, it's not based on one specific. No, game. it's like it's a piece of four and a piece of two and a piece oh. of three, and it's yeah. It's, I don't know if I love that. It was better than I thought it was going to be, but yeah, um, I didn't have I had low expectations, but it did pretty well too. So I gotta see. I think that. we'll I think we'll see more. But what did you think of this final boss fight? This was now it's hard to know going back. Was this a point of contention because people were looking for something to complain about, or was it a real point of contention? People really didn't. I don't want to say people. A lot of people didn't like the end boss, and I have to agree. And watching it again, I was like, it reminded me again of the Navarro fight, where I was like, it doesn't need to end like this. I don't know why you feel like the game needs to end like this. And Uncharted One ending in that dock fight made a little bit even more sense. Felt full circle with the boat fight in the beginning and all that. This one. It's weird because they almost like took, you know, what what is it? They took victory from the, or they took defeat from the jaws of victory or whatever. I don't know, whatever it is where they, <laughs> I you know, know what I'm talking about yeah, where I know what you mean. they have this beautiful environment in Shambhala. It's just falling apart. It's hectic. What would have been cool is if they were just like, fuck it. Lazarevich dies or whatever gets caught in this in chaos. His men and the guardians are all fighting each other. They're also going to fight you and you just have to get out of here. Like that would have been totally sufficient. And you get a piece of that after the boss fight. So I'm confused why they felt they needed it. It's very video gamey in a bad way. And I don't think that they would have made that decision again if they could do it again. It, it seems out of place. It reminds you it's a video game. Yeah. And it's the only time it really does. And I don't I like when games and they're bolder now, but I like when games are bold enough to say like, we don't need a boss fight. We don't need a last boss. We don't need anything like that. We don't need a boss meter and, and health and all that. It's not necessary. And I feel like this is one of those games where it wasn't really necessary, especially because Shambhala itself would have been an interesting last boss fight as you just need to get out of there. That's, yeah. that's it. Escape. So, and it would have been cool to say like, this is so powerful that Lazarvich, like Lazarvich is just irrelevant. He just gets fucking killed, you know, trying to go after it. Like so many before him, he's just another failed warlord trying to get access to this and you don't need to have it doesn't need to be any crazier than that right and then it's just like getting out of there with your hide so i, I don't want to rewrite amy hennig of all people <laughs> but, but that's the way i would have done it how did you feel about that last boss fight i mean you know me give me a good boss fight i'm down i'm not really sure though it fits into the template quote unquote of uncharted i have to agree with you on that now there is a lot of ways you could have done this, right? 
first of all, from a visual standpoint, it would have been cool. I mean, if you're going to make Lazarevich a proper baddie and you're going to do the visual and you're going to tag on that visual component, make him really huge, like like Cable in the comic books or something. I'm not right. talking about Josh Brolin Cable. I'm talking right. about Rob Liefeld Cable, right? Make him a proper, you know, make him a proper villain. Make him a proper cartoon baddie. Do something fun. But, you know, the boss fight thing kind of dawned on me earlier in the game, Kyle, because the first time you fight the Wampa Snow Monster, and then it seemed like it was mostly Wampa Snow Monsters, right? There was a couple of where you had to fight. There was a couple of sequences where you had to fight both at once, once in the temple and once again. So they did sort of try to tie in sort of coax that boss model in a little bit. And I wouldn't have minded it if it was done a little better. I think, I mean, that first, the ending of Uncharted 1 of Drake's Fortune was probably the worst part, right? It was very anticlimactic. The baddie changed at the last moment. That's not always a bad thing, but it felt a little bit tagged on. felt a little bit like an afterthought. In this one, it felt like it could have been fun, it also wasn't that difficult. I think that does speak to the basically the rhythms of the game, though. That's consistent. Um, yeah, I don't know. I would like to see... If you're going to do... Here's my thing with Uncharted. And who knows? Maybe this happens. Don't ruin it for me. But if you're going to do an Uncharted with boss fights, incorporate that in so it feels consistent and woven throughout the game. Because... I think I could get down for that. You know, I grew I'm an 8-bit guy. That's how I grew up with NES. I'm I'm definitely conditioned by the boss thing. I love the formula. I can't see it ever getting old. I think Kojima does a great job with that, right? Especially in thinking of the Metal Gear games. He's the master. So I don't mind, you know, I don't mind. It doesn't have to be Shadow of the Colossus, but like have the, you know, have the boss fights. But yeah, this felt like they could have done something better. And I love your thought about Maybe, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, maybe that sought-after power is just too much for a man and it destroys him, and that's the ending. That's That seems like a proper nod to everything that this game is inspired by, so why not go that route? You know? Yeah, I just yeah, I would have loved the idea of just throwing Lozarevich away as being like... Yeah, you know, that's whatever. great. That's I mean, great. Like, that's okay. great, dude. And, and, and ending, yeah. when you have an experience like this, you don't want to end on a low note, even though it's not a deal-breaker, obviously. It's not the most egregious thing in the world. You want to end on an, on an up note because the experience was so wonderful throughout. Sure. Agreed. Yeah. Dig, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you wanted to talk about? You know, I was thinking about this, Kyle, when you have something that's this amazing and, and holds up this well, I was thinking about how could they generally improve it? And I don't know. I thought of a couple of things, but I don't know that I would think of anything that was profoundly different. Here's the thing that I love about, I'm finding that I really love about this game and I'm loving about Nathan Drake and this protagonist specifically, is that this game and this character, there's this really joyful tone and spirit to this game. Very giddy, upbeat, sort of that thrill-seeking. Again, very much like Indiana Jones, maybe even more so. And I think Nathan Drake is a less dour protagonist than even Indy, as fun as Indy is. And I love, it it occurred to me that the fun at the center of this experience is that there's nothing more fun than a character in the most profound danger that refuses to admit that they're in danger. It doesn't matter what's happening to Nathan Drake throughout this game. 
he's making jokes and wisecracking and acting like it's no big deal and no skin off his back the entire time. And you realize that you're kind of admiring this guy. It's like, wow, I love this guy's outlook. I mean, what a wonderful, he has his luck. He has his good fortune, right? He has that whole exchange with, with Victor. And he's like, you know, Sully's like, I'm out, dude. I don't have your luck type of thing. But it's, it's more than that. It's just his spirit of adventure. It's like, wow, I want to kind of be, I realize at the end of this game that I want to be like Nathan Drake. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, awesome. he's awesome. Yeah, Drake's awesome. I mean, he's an awesome character, and we've, we've not seen nearly the, the end of him. Um, well, obviously, maybe you guys will vote for it, but we'll um, certainly get to the third game. And the fourth game's a little closer to us time-wise, but we can probably do that at some point in the future, too. But Yeah. I had that PlayStation they... 4, actually, with the, t- with the uh, pack-in. Right, right. Yeah, that 4. was 2016 when they were, 2015, 2016, when they were gearing up for Uncharted 4 and Bluepoint. Did those really awesome PS4 ports. And so, uh, yeah. Um, is there anything else, Dick? No, I mean, no, that's have... it. The only thing is, again, with the grenades, guys, I like the fact that they took it out and sort of gave it its own mechanic, gave it its own button so you don't have to toggle to it. Right. But really, the the blast radius of the grenades, we can't do something about this. They're they're almost useless. Yeah. You kind of just throw in, you kind of just run in and throw a grenade before you start firing because you know that's the thing to do. <laughs> yeah, and maybe you'll get one I think I hit one person with a grenade. In yeah, the game hours. T- the game does count. By the way, that's one thing I want to say is this game. I mean, it's not so much. It's not crazy for the time, but I am. I'm looking back. It's so nice that it's like there are no weapon upgrades, there are no leveling, there's no experience, there's no, nothing like that. And they have everyone expected with Uncharted Four. They're like, you're gonna finally be annoying, right? Because The Last of Us kind of does all this shit, and they're like, no, we're not. We're not doing that. So and good. It's so it's kind of fresh, and that that is one of the things about maybe the the stage sequence of boss and then boss fight is that that is very old school, and you can kind of see that it, they do embrace like the staginess of it. Yes, which is nice. I like that too. I mean, we, we Lily Mo's newest game is stage based, and I I like that. I'm I'm old school too, but it just doesn't work very well in this the the, the expectations of modern world. Like, I wonder with Uncharted Five if it comes out and it's linear, if it's going to bother people. And my hope is is that it's can't be anything else but linear like it's then it's not uncharted anymore then it's yeah. fucking then it's one of these many open world games we already have so yeah i think uncharted 2 is a very risk by, uncharted by 2 changing is a, that yeah i agree and i right, don't think by changing that model no i don't think yeah. they would do that and you know and, uh, I, also yeah. a nod to that whole thing we talked about in the first one too the fact that it is linear but they roll chapter to chapter just with the text real quick mm-hmm. it's not interrupted you're just flowing from one chapter to the next it has those sort of those headings, those titles that feel, you know, again, that feel like, feels like a movie somehow. But I guess because it's not being interrupted, you're flowing from one to the next, but it is still linear. And yeah, there's some, there's this a really magical formula to the Uncharted games that I'm getting so far, at least through the first two iterations, that is very special. And um, dude, I had an amazing time with this game. It's just, I mean, just for out and out fun. And that's the other thing. I think it's accessible. I really think I could give this game to like Helene and she would probably, she would be a little bit slower on the, on the, on the uptake, but I think give her a couple of days and she could probably do this game. And I think that's kind of cool to have that sort of, you know, to be kind of, to have something that inviting and something that's that inclusive but still feels so much like a gamer's game, if that makes sense. It's really kind of a, Kind of a tough balancing act, and they pull yeah. it off. 
Yeah, well said. Yeah, it's got the bonafides of the hardcore and the the it, it enchants regular audiences. These games sell millions and millions of copies for a reason. So yeah. Uh, well, that's Uncharted Two Among Thieves. It's available on PS3 and on PS4. I don't know if it's available a la carte, but you can get it in the Blue Point Collection, which is really good on PS4. Now, when we finally get to Uncharted Three. I think I will play that alongside you because I don't think I ever platinumed it on PS4. So there's a compelling oh. reason for me to, I did on PS3 back in the day, but it a compelling reason for me to uh, satiate my ridiculous <laughs> obsessive compulsive disorder with, uh, with my trophy hunting. So is it about uh, one spoiler? Is it about the same length as the first two? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Four okay. is the one that gets much longer. Oh, as okay. I recall, but yeah, three is about the same length. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. It's good to know. Yeah. So, we'll Dig, let's there. end every episode uh, like we do. Every episode of Knockback, we end with a dad joke. Let's let's do that. All right. Here, I got one for you, my friend. Kyle, how was Rome split in two? I don't know. With a pair of scissors. <laughs> that's like, True that's enough. like Stimpy saying scissors, right? Yeah, scissors, it is. You idiot. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that one. Very nice historical. Not bad. Accurate. Yeah, not bad at all. <laughs> Well, Dave, thanks for your time today. Very good. Thank you all fun. there for, for your love, kindness, and support of all things Knockback. Remember, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Media for early ad-free access, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to our show, and submit your topic ideas. We actually, as of the time of recording this, the primary for the new vote is out. We'll see what people come up with. The games we, or the, uh, the products we owe as of the time we're doing this, I think, I think we owe Metal Gear Solid 4. Oh, that's going to be fun. Which I've never played more than like 10 hours of, so I'm going to be totally new to that. Okay. That'll be cool. Yeah, that was during like a... That was that was actually before Uncharted 2, so that was 2008. That was okay. another one of those PS3 exclusives that was pretty important. And that game is sealed away on PS3. You have to play it there. I mean, there's no way to play it otherwise. Oh, wow. Which is, which is fucking stupid and annoying. Right over there. But we owe that. Uh, Ocarina of Time just won, which I haven't played in oh, wow. 20 I never years played probably. It. Oh, I that's never a wonderful played that that's game. a really wonderful game. I have to figure out where I'm going to play it. Yeah. Probably, probably on Switch. I don't know if yeah, it's I guess available there. You have my N64, so you can play it there. I have I have the that game. And then way. we own we owe Star Wars Episode 3, which we'll get to shortly. That's, that's coming. So, yeah, we have a few things to get to, but um, we appreciate your support over there on Patreon. So thank you. And leave us nice reviews on podcast services if you choose as well. And that's it. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Until then, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC, and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Casual Misfits Gaming, Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLDFMA, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vaders, Tom Quinn, Stephen Interfield, Forkboy Gaming, Eduardo Perez, Salty Trees, My Name is Fucking Mayo, Logan Byford, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Zahn, Christopher Knock, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Nuclear Prostate, Jonas Young, Sorta Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parrix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Troy Miller, Meyer Katz, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Chris 
Christian R, Jad Rita, Benjamin Muma, Patrick Skipper, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Hallen Rui, Tyler Watkins, Michael Buffel, Troilus True, Dan Root, Talisman, Christopher, Randall Halsey, Nuke Dukem, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H Trons, Antonio C, Jay Getter, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Jordan Gale of Fortuna, John Zeal, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Flowers, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Cruxes, Chris Moore, Caswell, Chris, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ali Fritz, Zach Allen, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Simon Dunbar, Dallar Rodriguez, Damon W., Fat Houdini, Richter 86, Steve Hodge, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algaret, Dominic, Mike Menzel, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Anton Kay, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kinniston, The Rose Experience, and Grizzled Veterans Media, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jorge Powell, Jesper Jansen, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Joey Gonhalliger, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, Brent Linquist, David I. Colucci, Paul Joyce, Passive Pixels, Edwin Castillo, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Ashley Carlson, Marius Garson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Purdue, Patrick Harper, Mad Mock Media, and Jonathan Rice.